name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for The Gray. Yeah, I'm here with Christian uh, Christian Warchowski. My first name's Pete. You look like a Pete. And also Kelly Wand, who maybe has a tagline for us that somehow relates to The Gray. Kelly Wand, do you? Uh, do I? That wasn't it, by the way. It <laughs> okay. is. If you like seeing Liam Neeson kick ass, Rob Roy and Taken are on DVD. <laughs> okay. It's a minor spoiler, I I'll, guess. But I, I had one before. Uh, I, I like to read obituaries as cautionary tales, because you don't want to become famous for um, being the guy who pissed on the electric fence right. or for writing the jumper video game. And so after reading a news story a few years ago, I wrote, Note to self, don't bring pepper spray to a bear fight. <laughs> and how's, how's that served you so far? It's fine. Okay. I'm here, ain't I? That's true. That's true. That's one thing we can say about you, and we are glad for that. Uh, so let's see. We all saw this movie this week. Um, and what a great movie to see a week before I get on a plane to Vancouver, which, according to the credits, is where this movie was shot. Thanks, Tom. Vancouver's near Alaska, so keep that in mind. I don't even know. A... <laughs> uh, let's see. Before we talk about The Gray, should we I, – I, I'm curious. So the SAG, nomin- the SAG Awards were uh, announced. Um, so, Dingus, you were – Oh, choosing- was that today? That was one of many recent awards. You know, we're in the middle of award season. All this stuff is oh, rolling out. I hate out. it when I miss those. Damn. But all this stuff is now official. Now, Dingus was lucky enough to be chosen. Uh, it's sort of a lottery, and he's gotten in a few times. So, Dingus, you were on the SAG nominating committee. And I've been wanting to ask you this, but I don't know if you could say before if it would be like a violation of an NDA or something. Uh, what things did you nominate? Can you tell us that? Uh, sure. Are you allowed to say that? I I think I am. I think I'm in charge of that, but I don't know if I can remember all, all of the everything that I was nominated. Yeah, I just didn't want to get you kicked out of SAG or anything. Uh, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. So I'm assuming yeah. the, the the SAG stuff is they love like the artist and the help and uh, and all that kind of stuff. I'm assuming Dingus that was not that the things that were actually nominated weren't really in tune with the things that you picked. Out of curiosity, what things did you pick for like the acting awards from this past year? My favorite performances were. Um, Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain in uh, Take the Shelter. Oh. In The Debt Shelter. <laughs> uh, so I, I nominated them. I no- nominated Shailene Woodley from The Descendants. Ah. Um, I nominated uh, Saoirse Ronan from Hannah. Um, but I, uh, boy, you know, I, I, I nominated Brad Pitt from young- Tree of Life, not Moneyball. Is there an ensemble award? Doesn't isn't that one of the things SAG does? Is an ensemble award, or maybe I'm thinking of Golden Globes or something? No, no, no. You're absolutely right. I nominated Margin Call for the ensemble. Ah, very good, Dingus. Ah. All right. In that case, I don't feel as bad about not being picked for the nominated committee because Dingus, I feel you served my interests my interests pretty well. Oh well, I, that's what I endeavored to do. <laughs> Thank you. It's just an honor to be nominated to the nominating committee, huh, Dingus? <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wand, who would you have picked if you had been on the SAG nominating committee? Uh, wait, Piranha 3 was two years ago. <laughs> Lake Mungo was 2006. Nobody! Or Romney. I can't go, I can't decide. Uh, so Dingus, what did we do again this week? Why don't you, without spoiling anything, why don't you tell folks what... Unless you had more to say about the outcomes and who got snubbed about it stuff, 
or anything on the SAG Awards. I don't because I was not at the SAG Awards today. I was somewhere else. I was today. <laughs> I the whole know. point of these awards season is who gets snubbed. I couldn't care less who wins. It's who gets snubbed that, that's most interesting uh, to me. Right. Yeah, I don't care about this. I, should we talk Oscars? No. Right? That should right be about the award. <laughs> is, you got, it's the snubbed award. Uh, I think we, uh, if you want to know who won the, the worthwhile awards, go back and listen to our top 10 of 2011 podcast. That's what I personally recommend. If you're really raring to, you know, if you're into award season, don't neglect the quarter to three movie podcast awards. Not that we gave them trophies or they even know we exist, but it's a very prestigious cachet. It is, yes. Just because there aren't as many people on the Quarter 3 Movie Podcast as there are in the Academy of Arts and Sciences of Motion Picture, whatever it's called, doesn't mean that we count any less, right? Hey, we should have 10 people and make a Quarter to 10 Movie Podcast to boost ratings next year. We'll look into that. I like your idea, Kelly. And make it 8 the next year, and then 9 or something. Just keep changing it. Keep people guessing, sure. (laughs) So, Dingus, (laughs) what what did you... Me and Kelly Wand see this past week. Don't spoil anything. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to drive off people who haven't seen the movie yet. But why That's don't you just get? Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, before then, Dingus, why don't you tell folks what we did? All right. This week we saw the gray. Mm. Dingus, is that E Y or A Y? I thought you could tell from the way I pronounced it. Try again. Say- Let me hear it again. Let me hear it again. The gray. Mm. Well done. I got that. Thank you very much. It's a 2012 action-adventure drama thriller movie (laughs) about an oil drilling team struggling with a pack of wolves in Alaska. Mm. The movie was written and directed by Joe Carnahan and also written by Ian McKenzie Jeffers based on his short story. Mm. It stars Liam Neeson, Dallas Roberts, Frank Grillo, Joe Anderson, and Dermot Mulroney. The gray. I don't think that's how you pronounce his name. You did real well with saying Gray, but then you mangled poor Mr. Mulroney's first name like that. I think oh, the E's silent in Mulroney. Sorry, I meant to say Dylan McDermott. I apologize. <laughs> the Gray is rated R for violence slash disturbing content, including bloody images mm. and pervasive language. Yep. Uh, yeah, worst kind. Uh, the Gray had an actually a, a very good, a strong opening. Uh, it opened at $20 million. I think there was a lot of suspense this, this weekend amongst people who watched this thing as to whether or not it would be the, uh, the second. No, no, not Catherine Heigl. It was uh, the second weekend for the Underworld movie, Underworld 4, that Kate Beckinsale vampire werewolf thing. Uh, their uh, fourth yeah. movie came out. They had a good opening last weekend. Uh, the Gray is a smaller picture, so folks were, were wondering, hey, would Underworld 4 carry the, the lead spot in the box office again or not? The Gray handily beat Underworld 4 uh, at a $20 million opening. Uh, it is currently at 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. That is the percentage of reviews that are positive. Uh, on Metacritic, however, the average review gives it a 63% rating. So the average rating it's gotten is at 63%. Uh, so that said, Kelly Wand, let's now run people off who have not seen The Gray yet by spoiling for them every single thing that happens in the course of this movie. Oh, how appealing that sounds to do. <laughs> By the way, uh, whenever my mom sees a movie, mm-hmm. I can always tell it sucks if she says, if I go, how was it? And she goes, it was entertaining. <laughs> like... 
Entertaining kind of, is a word I think of as that that would apply to like clowns who juggle. Really? Because see, I think entertainment something awesome. Like it, it really sucks you in. Like Star Wars is entertaining. I mean, used to be. Like, what do you have against really great? What do you have against like, juggling clowns, Kelly Wand? <laughs> Nothing. Tough. It's good for a minute. I mean, entertaining to me is one of those those adjectives that is a uh, it means very little, and someone will roll it out in defense of a horrible movie when they can't really articulate anything else that was good about it. They'll say, "Oh, I was entertained. It was entertaining." So it's the opposite of entertainment. Usually, when I hear that word, a red flag goes up for me. I'm getting the they're sense using it, but isn't that what you're saying about your mom? Is that when yeah, she said, I'm saying that people that. now use the word entertaining the way. That show, the Magic Hour, used the word magic. Like it took something that we thought was magical and made right. it. Okay. I think I agree with you, Kelly Wand. Yeah. <sighs> the, yeah. I, what? <laughs> All right. So, Entertainment Weekly. The Gladiators. Uh, weekly. <laughs> gladiators. Dingus. I find it interesting that Dingus goes to uh, Gladiators when he thinks of entertaining. Are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a double negative, and already it's like. I am not not entertained is the correct response in Latin. That's a guess. The gracious. Gracious. Awesome. By the way, if you Google the image for gray, you get a whole lot of stuff of uh, little alien faces and of Gandalf. <laughs> uh, Gandalf the gracious. <laughs> but uh, I forgot what I was going to say. All right. So oh. give us a gracious Kelly Wand. The graces. Kelly Wand? Graces with the graces. So to gain our sympathies, uh, Liam Neeson plays the ultimate sympathetic everyman, a man in Alaska sniping wolves for an oil company. He snipes one from 12 feet away in broad daylight while it's cunningly loping around, chasing its tail, enjoying the scenery. But not enough to kill it instantly, so he sucks at his job, too. While he watches the wolf die... He pets its wheezing belly, and his ensuing voiceover explains, Into the fray to live and die in L.A. I think my son snipes wolves for oil of Olay. No way. But at least it's not O.J. Pull the strings, beware, take care, blah, blah. And the wolf finally dies in his arms from listening to his mind. Liam Neeson's feeling suicidal, which is movie speak for dead wife or girlfriend flashbacks, where even though they're beautiful and healthy looking, we know they're dying because there's an insert of an IV drip. To cheer himself up, he goes to a local linoleum cafeteria where people get drunk and fight constantly because there's no bouncers. Or according to his voiceover, a place where men unfit for mankind can fit in till they have a fit and become unkind. Wolf Hunter Waters run heapum deepum. To wit, he goes outside to shoot himself in the mouth with his sniper rifle, but it's harder than he expected to look through the scope at the same time. <laughs> Plus, a wolf howl makes him realize it would be manlier to get torn to pieces after a plane crash. So he decides he decides to take a plane trip to Juneau. Racist. Although a homeless person tries to scrape some snow off the plane's hood for a couple <laughs> seconds before takeoff, it still crashes. Correction. Right before they take off, an annoying guy farts in his face and sits next to him and keeps turning the overhead light on and off and the fan and the window shade and going, is it annoying when I do this? How about now? What if I do this? And he screeches like a banshee and scratches his nail on a chalkboard from his carry-on, and then he runs into the cockpit and grabs the wheel and crashes the plane into a mountaintop. Like the audience and Joe Carnahan, Liam Neeson misses seeing this event, 
because he's dreaming of his wife and some bedsheets. Don't be afraid, her dream ghost bedsheet Manitou tells him with a wise, healthy smile. And just as he replied to her in life, his dream self saw, Why would I be? You're the one dying. Liam Neeson jolts awake in the snow, because being slightly cold and lying on a powdery drift is more jarring to a sleeping human than the sensation of an airplane all around coming apart catching fire. You flying out of your seat, somehow, and falling through the air, and landing. Some other dudes are alive, mostly. One of them's bleeding from his abdomen inside the plane. Dizzily, he goes, what's happening? You're dying, Liam Neeson says, taking the guy's hand off his wound. It's okay. Just look at my face. It's okay, the guy splutters. You're a sniper. Could you please find a tourniquet or something? Fuck. But Liam Neeson's staring contest comfort trick works. <laughs> Assuming it was his goal to kill the guy. He also told the guy to think of his own dead wife or daughter instead of the bleeding to death thing, which seems harder to do if a dude's simultaneously commanding you to stare at his face. But sure, chez la femme. Some wolves show up and eat one of them. Instead of helping save him, Liam Neeson waves to him as he's dragged off by the wolf pack and offers the other stunned survivors some valuable intel. Wolves have a territorial radius of 300 miles, but a kill zone of only 10 kiloliters and an eating radius of 6 inches. And the black guy's all, for black wolves, it's more like 8 or 9 inches. <laughs> Flaccid. <laughs> Get that, dingus? What? The Weasley character tries to take a dead guy's wallet, but Liam Neeson yells at him, so he puts it back. Liam Neeson also gets mad at a wolf reading the stewardess, so it attacks him for 30 seconds, but he beats it off by being in jerky close-up and getting a small scratch on his cheek that I mentally predict won't get infected. Another badass coal miner lumberjack guy gets his hand viciously savaged by the same wolf and says some shit like, Dude, I just lost a nail! They camp for the night and make the black guy do the first shift of guard duty. Like the black guy in the adjustment bureau, he falls asleep on watch. Liam Neeson sees this and goes, Hey, don't fall asleep on watch, even though the wolves killed our last guy when he was wide awake in the day, so it probably doesn't matter. And the black guy's all, Hey, that's a motherfucking stereotype, yo, word. So Liam Neeson goes to sleep, and the black guy goes over to the first-class cabin to pee on his ex-bosses, and he's peeing and looking down and going, six inches, whoa, and then a wolf eats him. The next day, they wake up to find a bunch of blood in the black guy's hand and wolf tracks leading off to the woods. The glasses guy's all, we're going to need a bigger plane. You think he's okay, says annoying guy? We'd better head for the woods, says Liam Neeson, and they're all, uh, where the wolves are? And he's all, I know how they think. We stand a better chance if they're eating us. And they're all, uh, should we give a shit which direction we're walking in or anything? Maybe start a forest fire? That's kind of a twofer, actually. And Liam Neeson's all, let's take all the dead people's wallets. That way their families won't have to cancel their credit cards. And the dick character he yelled at earlier for taking the wallets all, what the fuck? But Liam Neeson's already walking away. But the religious guy's all, Shouldn't we say something religious to take the edge off our knowledge that these bodies are going to be devoured by wolves soon to hopefully propitiate them off our asses? And they're all, eh, religious guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he's all, dear Lord, thank you for sparing us from a quick, fiery death in favor of whatever joyous fates you have in mind for our characters. And thanks especially for sending us this Liam Neeson character. He always makes smart decisions, except constantly in Phantom Menace. Anyways, thanks again, especially for Tim Tebow. That's so selfless what he's doing and what I'm doing right now. Amen. They walk through the snow. 
One of them lags a couple feet behind, and when he starts whining, wolves attack him. His friends hear this, and they're all, Kenny, hang on! And they look at Liam Neeson, and he's unzipping his backpack and getting his right and left snowshoes mixed up and trying to find matching mittens, and they're all, uh, are you really the hero of this movie? In Taken, you actually tried to save people. We're only 20 minutes in, and you're like 0 for 3. And Liam Neeson's all, look, if I get frostbite, no one wins. <laughs> Except the frost. He's playing chess against the frost in my Okay, so they listen to their friend die, and it makes them sleepy, so they camp for the night in a cul-de-sac of trees, or what we're told by Joe Carnahan is one. And one of the guys is being kind of a dick, and he gets up with a knife, and he's all, I want to stab you with a knife, fucking Liam Neeson. And Liam Neeson's all, I get it, you're scared. I'm scared too, just a better actor. Yet the last to get a death scene, if I even have one. Kind of ironic, huh? And the dude's all, man, fuck you, stupid Liam Neeson. I'm going to cut you with this knife. I'm super upset right now. And Liam Neeson punches him in the face. And the dude's all, hey, man, fuck that. I wasn't ready. You're a pussy, man. I dare you to try that. <laughs> and a wolf jumps on his back, and they all kill it. And then uh, they kill it. <laughs> and the dick character comes out from behind the tree and stabs it for ten minutes after they've all sat back down. And he cuts off its head, and he throws it into the wood, and he goes, that's right, bitch. Then a million wolves howl back, and he hides behind Liam Neeson's skirt, shivering and crying for his mommy, while his knife cries and calls for its scabbard. See me kill the leader of the pack, though? He whines. I'm fierce. And Liam Neeson strokes his sack and gently goes, That wasn't the leader, Gary. It was the pack's lamest douchebag member. <laughs> Their version of Kenny here. And the annoying guy's all, Hey! And the dick character's all, Why'd they send him alone when they could have just killed all of us in three seconds? And Liam Neeson's all, to test our defenses. Like in Red Planet, when the robot broke that dude's finger and then ran away again. And Val Kilmer's character used that as an example of predatory craftiness. They all eat the dead wolf, because Liam Neeson says it'll send a message to the rest of the pack. But they say it tastes like dog shit, and then they all get sick, which also sends a message to the pack. We're out of food, attack soon. The black guy is sick and has a fever because of being black at a high altitude. And they know his illness is serious because he feverishly stands up and deliriously says stuff to his sister who died when he was 11 that somehow another logger knows the name of. So far, the only dead type of female relative a dying character hasn't had visions of is a grandma. Screw you, Gertrude. Hollywood can make its own baked goods. They treat the black guy's sickness by doing nothing, and he dies during the night. They realize this because he has icicles on his eyes. The annoying character goes, I thought he tasted funny. As they wander randomly through various scenic ways to die from their own negligence, their luck improves in that they start dying faster and more horribly. One of them forgets to take his glasses off while he's shimmying down a cable or like a rope strung together from bed sheets they have somewhere strung across a chasm. And the rope breaks because they forgot to tie it right, so he falls, but luckily his skeleton breaks his fall, and he smashes into a bunch of branches, breaking every bone in his body. Then he gets mauled to pieces by waiting wolves at the bottom, who got there quickly because their rope didn't break, because its knots weren't tied by fucking Liam Neeson. <laughs> Liam Neeson has an adage he has caused to whip out frequently during the course of this movie, ostensibly to ease spiritual passage. He says that death doesn't hurt, it just, quote, slides over you which in this case means that while the guy is getting torn to pieces by slavering beast jaws, he imagines that his dead daughter's hair is scraping his naked eyes and choking his airways. I guess I'd rather be killed by my daughter than by wolves, but only if she's Gina Carano, and I'm Fassbender. 
the dick character fucks up his knee climbing down the tree to get a better view of the glasses guy being dragged up. So after they walk a few more miles, he makes a speech and sits down by the stream to die. Turns out he and Liam Neeson have the same first name, John, and the same handshake, kind of limp and clammy. Liam Neeson tells them about a poem his dad wrote, that thing that opens with Into the Fray, We're All Dead, Hooray. A daddy says who never cried or said anything else and who somewhat anticlimactically died in an ordinary plane crash, so not technically a fray. So they leave the Dick character to ponder all this while wolves eat him, and they keep trudging onward. Now it's just Liam Neeson and the religious guy. Since nothing else of consequence has happened to them recently, the religious dude logically obsesses on the look he saw in Liam Neeson's face when he left the bar that one night to kill himself. Liam Neeson's all, yeah, I guess I was sad. Kind of weird that you give a shit now but didn't follow me then that night or mention it till just now guess that means your character's getting killed off soon and the religious guy's all yeah i know i'm not the main character because it's not like you ever say anything about my sad moments why was a pacifist like me at that bar and what's my name again and liam neeson's all john probably (laughs) a pair of wolves listening finally get bored and attack them but they trick the wolves by running away sluggishly through the deep snowdrifts and then tumbling into the freezing lake the religious guy gets his foot stuck in a rock, so his head six inches below the surface, and he's drowning. Or in black water, eight inches. Liam Neeson courageously and wisely tries to yank him up and keeps going, Hold your breath, quit screwing around, you're acting like your foot's caught, but I have zero interest in investigating that possibility. That guy dies. On the upside, the wolves magically disappear. Liam Neeson yells at God, Show me a sign, I really need it. And God's all, oh, I sent some wolves to put God in <laughs> you wanted to die. <laughs> Liam Neeson can't hear this because he's an atheist, I guess. Plus, he's surrounded by a thousand growling wolves. He takes out all the dude's wallets and writes out a will bequeathing all their contents to the wolves. Then he ties some airliner toy boots bottles to his knuckles and cracks the ends off so he's all wolverine which might have been helpful a few wolves before. Then he and the lead wolf, who's black and not gray, charge at each other, and just before the credits roll, the black wolf saw, wow, this makes Meek's cutoffs ending look like Return of the Kings. The end. All right, Kelly Wan. <clears throat> so you did not stick around after the credits, I, I see. Aha, uh-huh, you did! You oh, did. very nice, very nice. I was sure that I was going to be able to point something out to you. <laughs> and I found that equally ambigu- ambiguous. 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 Oh, what's, that? Uh, what's the Easter egg? I didn't even understand that. <laughs> it's not an Easter egg. It's an Easter nut. Ending. <laughs> hey, this is the end that we want two people to see now that we uh, screwed you out of seeing the... Uh... Oh, that's so unconscionable. I hate that. There was, a, Every... there was a guy in the theater who looked back at me and goes, a lot of people left, huh? <laughs> uh-huh. I uh, When I was leaving, there was uh, it was me and another couple just standing there at the door, you know, watching the credits, uh, and that little scene flashed up, and the guy looked at me. He didn't look at his date for some reason. He looked at me like he wanted me to say something. And I was like, oh, I, I guess uh, I guess the wolf lived. And the guy was adamant. He's like, oh, no, no, no. The, he, he killed the wolf. He's alive. That's the same thing I heard. <laughs> and with equal, what? No, because they go, you hear the GPS, so that means he's alive. I go, but you see the wolf breathing. Yeah, I go, I mean, so they kill it's clearly ambiguous. Yeah, there's no. Uh, I I was a little irked at that too. I don't know why that was. Yeah, he makes you wait. I don't for think it's it. ambiguous like, at all. I think it's... Go on, Dingus. Go on. <laughs> it's it's clearly a, a visual quote from the earlier killing of the wolf. They're both doomed. It's just a it's just a button for the few people who stood who sat around. It's not any different than the ending. 
uh, is they're Liam both doomed. Alive. They're both dead. Even, even if the he is, is dead, the wolf. All that you can know for sure is that the wolf is alive. It's the only information right. that is that is that is conveyed with any certainty. Everything right. else requires some sort of interpretation. So that's why I say it's ambiguous in that there's only one minor fact conveyed, and I don't know why he wants us to convey that fact. I get the callback, but I'm not exactly sure. I just called in. I don't know the sense that I don't. The callback to Liam Neeson touching the the wolf. Right, right, right. Uh, who lived and he died, and that's the poem. I mean, well, yeah, the, the wolves, the the rest of the pack is all around him, so there's no way he lives regardless. Well, but, no, but if you kill the leader, yeah, they kind of say that before, don't they? That if you kill the awful wolf, the rest they, of he's them. leading the wolves. He's Mowgli, and you hear the GPS, and my mom goes, "Oh, see, he got he got rescued because you have the GPS." Whoa, 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 whoa! Not only did he live, you're saying he made it. He survived that whole thing, and he's like sitting by a fireplace right now. I think he's dead, and the wolf's probably alive. Well, see, I think we agree with Dingus. Dingus, I think you're right. The the, the intent seems to be, yeah, he's certainly doomed but I, why i say it's ambiguous is i don't know why joe carnahan put that bit of information in that place that's what i think is ambiguous and a little confusing uh, and by the way you guys who don't watch trailers that wolf charge with the broken glass is in the trailer i so it's oh, just the movie yeah, yeah. Well, well the poster is basically the final shot too uh, that is in bullshit <laughs> well now let's okay. so let's back up let's back Inconstable. up because i like some things in this movie but that ending is I'm um, totally unacceptable. Okay, so Kelly Wand, you didn't like the, the, the ending. You said you liked some things in the movie. Overall, how did you feel about it? You you weigh in first. The ending trumps. The whole movie's set up and marketed to have you look forward to this awesome duel, and the poem suggests it's going to happen, and then at the end he makes it seem like it. I really wanted to find the short story and see what, because I, I read some quote where he, he said he changed the ending, but I couldn't find the story anywhere. I don't think the story's published. The story was, uh, the, the, the screenwriter did, uh, he did this horrible Death Wish. By the way, Joe Carnahan is now on a Death Wish remake, so how about that? Uh, Appropriate. The, uh, Ian Jeffries Davis, did I get that right, Dingus? Mackenzie Jeffers. Yeah, what do you call it? Jefferson Davis, Ian. Uh, Ian Mackenzie <laughs> Jeffers uh, did this the screenplay for a movie called Death Sentence that the director of uh, the first Saw he directed it. It's with Kevin Bacon. It's a Death Wish kind of ripoff. It's, it's got some interesting things, not very good. So this guy did that screenplay, and then he sent this short story to Joe Carnahan at some point. I don't think the story was ever published. Uh, it's sort of like I think Memento was originally a, a short story written by Jonathan Nolan, even though I'm not sure. I don't know if he ever got that published, but the idea was that he started it out as a short story, and then they developed it together into a script. So I don't know that you can find Ghost Walkers anywhere, because uh, I looked as well, Kelly Wand. Um, huh. So, Kelly Wand, you're saying you basically felt a little cheated. You thought that what was marketed, what you were expecting from the trailer, you didn't feel like you got what you thought you were going to get. No, and they, they, forced that, they forced me to think in those terms. Okay. I mean, they showed me the trailer. They wanted me to see that in the post. It's... I, I mean, what but does anyone said, did anyone leave that theater gratified? Like, oh man, that was so satisfying. But you said you so, did like some things about it, so you're kind of middling on it. You would say, I liked, um, I liked the chasm sequence. I thought it was it was suspenseful and unnerving and well shot. And I liked some of the dialogue, and I liked the the first plane freak out. Okay, all right, Dingus, it is your turn. Kelly Wan has is given us a mixed review of the gray. Where do you fall on this thing? First of all, I I think that the uh, the title "A Few Wolves Before" is a great title for telling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Um, yeah, I just like that. Uh, 
So anyway, um, uh, no, I, I loved this movie and I loved the ending. I was so relieved, uh, when it ended the way it ended and I was very, very happy with it. I, the button almost ruined it for me, uh, until I sort of processed it in the way I process things. Uh, but I, I was so happy with the ending. I thought they were going to cop out and, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm a little surprised at Kelly. I thought they were going to cop out when Liam Neeson was cursing God and I thought they were going to cop out at the very end. Well, well, I was very, very pleased with the ending. I'm a little surprised at Kelly, too, that, Kelly, you would you would let what the trailers showed you, what you deduced from the trailer, influence what you thought about the movie. Uh, now, I know that you watch trailers. I didn't realize I, the the big, the last big set piece of the movie is a guy sitting by a stream going, yeah, I'm tired, fuck this. <laughs> All right, like, so that's I, suspenseful. I would now like to invite you guys to play a game. This game is called Did Tom Like the Grey? Uh, Kelly Wand, you go first. Well, you said you're surprised at me, but that could be based. No, no, I'm surprised that you would, that at your objection is that you expected one thing from the trailer. I freaking hate trailers. They're trying to do something completely different than what the movie itself is trying to do. They're just trying to get people in the seats. I mean, we've talked about this before. I, yeah. So I'm a little surprised, Kelly Wand. I, I think it's a valid complaint, by the way, because I've since seen the trailer. And the trailer, uh... In ways, is it gives you a little bit of a sense of what you're in for, but you're right. I think a lot of people who paid the $20 million that this movie earned this weekend were expecting something that was sold to them more along the lines of Taken. Uh, I also, yes, and it was deliberate. It was, yep. set, oh, it was systematically marketed to those people. And like, Kelly Wan, oh, yeah. yep. And Kelly Wan, welcome to Hollywood. I think you've known this all along. That's <laughs> how it works. The Hollywood I know and love would have given me my death sentence hunt. With wish, but also too, uh, it was annoying to me after seeing Haywire, especially to have action sequences with wolves attacking men, where they're so close in, I can't see what's going on. Like I was, I, Haywire kind of spoiled me to like, okay, good, you pull body shots to see people okay. get mauled by wolves, and uh, I don't like Carnahan's action. Damn it! <laughs> and every sing, everyone is like that. There's not one wolf attack where it's not a close-up of a guy's face and some CG that I remember. Okay, well, let's get into that. Uh, so I, I love this as well. I'm uh-huh. definitely with Dingus. Um, I I think, Kelly Wan, part of what I loved about it is what you didn't like about it. Uh, this is easy to sort of look at as an action movie uh, or a sort of a survival adventure, even a horror movie. Uh, and what I love about The Grey is that it is none of those things. It is not necessarily about the wolves and the fight. You talk about the big set piece being the fight with the wolf at the end. Like Dinga said, I am elated that it ended where it ended because that is not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is not these wolves. It is not an action sequence with the wolves. The point of the movie... And and I think the title sells this, the, the dialogue sells this, the way it opens sells this. I think it's clear throughout the movie, if not the trailer, that you're not going to see a movie about action sequences with, with wolves. You're going to see a movie about the the will of various men to live and what happens to that will. You know, the fight is with that will to live and not with the wolves themselves. You know, when you think about it, the wolves don't actually kill that many of them. The wolves only get four or five of them. Right. You know, uh, and so the, I, th- I think it's a little... It's a little bit of misdirection, you know, this idea that it's that some people are going to this expecting to see, you know, Jaws with paws or whatever. Uh, that's that's not <laughs> what this. That's that, a good <laughs> well, uh, Jaws with claws wasn't that a tagline for the Edge that that David Mamet thing where Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin fight the bear? I think the tagline of that might have actually been Jaws with claws at each other, Tom. 
Well, that's the thing is, you know, David Mamet wrote that, you know, that's how it was sold. Hey, they're going to fight a bear. But right. David Mamet wrote this story about these men fighting each other. And, hey, there's a bear involved, too. So and I think the gray is kind of closer to that in that the, the script that Carnahan and Mackenzie Jeffers. Aha, uh-huh, you racist. <laughs> uh, the script that they did, it, that's not what the central conflict is. Uh, so I don't necessarily have that problem that you do with the action sequences not being like clear uh, or uh, well staged. Which okay, I let, agree me have, with. let me have one question for you because this kind of ties back to something you said last week. Because last week you were saying that one thing that took you out of Haywire was mm-hmm. that you considered the Gina Carano character dumb. Like she kept making dumb calls, and so it it, it kind of got to a, be annoying where you couldn't enjoy the movie. Did you consider the Liam Neeson character smart? Like, was he making sensible decisions in this movie? I don't think – see, that was the thing is I, I think that Haywire is is trying to be kind of like a born Identity realistic kind of a thriller, and that's, that's fine. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily – this is more of a movie about – like I said, this is a movie about a crisis of fate. This is an existential story. It is not a movie about wolves. So the, I, this idea, this silly idea that, uh, you know, they're going to escape the wolves by going into the forest, which, yeah, I thought that was silly. It, it's almost more metaphorical. Uh, yeah, if you looked at this as this realistic kind of alive style uh, survival drama, 127 Hours is another one that comes to mind. I don't think that that's the that's not the level on which I enjoyed it. So there I have plenty of gripes about that. You know, they should have stayed with the plane. What was this whole, this idea right. that, oh, 50 planes aren't going to search for us. There's only going to be two of them. They're not going to find us. In t- that's ridiculous. No, planes have transponders. They know where it goes right, down. Right, right. They're going to be rescuers there. But that's yeah. not the level on which I was watching and enjoying this movie. I was enjoying this movie as an existential uh, sort of horror story. Religion junkies are tedious, if I may steal Dingus's quote. <laughs> Use it to my own. Experience. Well, there were times where they would get into a religious discussion, and I'd be like, "Oh God, please don't! This is right. absurd! Don't do this!" And it wasn't until the end of the movie that I really realized that those discussions were there for a reason, because that's what the movie was going to be about. Um, I didn't feel that. You, I don't know if you meant me as far as religion junkies, but as far as movies about religion, the characters, I didn't feel that this was a, a religion junkie movie when it did some of the scenes about, "Hey guys," like you know, when they, the "Hey guys," we should stop and pray. They had just a Established that they were already taking time to get the wallets and that they were losing daylight, and then they have a scene where they stop and pray. Yeah, that was dumb, but this wasn't really, you know, the survival, the realism of the survival wasn't as important to the movie as this portrayal of religion and, and, and faith in crisis, I, I thought. So the fact that these, these very real complaints you have, I can certainly recognize those, but they didn't bother me in this instance. Um, eh. Let's get Dingus in here. So uh, that's my rebuttal. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a fair point. Take that, chick. Uh, Dingus, why did you love this? Eloquence. Because I think you and I, Dingus, are very careful to roll out the L word. You know, we we like that L word. We like plenty of movies, and some movies are cool. But for you and I to say we love a movie, which we have both said about the Gray, I, I feel is pretty extreme language. What makes you roll out this language? Uh, it just got me. It got me. Uh, pretty early on, um, I liked the the stuff in the plane. That's why I didn't mention the plane at all when I did my little mini synopsis. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be about that. I didn't. I just knew that it was called the Gray, and there might be something having to do with wolves. I had no other idea about it. It just it snagged me early on, and I really liked all the. And I know this is filmmaker telegraphing stuff, but I liked all the alpha alpha stuff that was going on where the alpha wolf was figuring out who the alpha was in their pack and, and how, um, 
how you know him putting down the the alpha putting down the the struggle was mirrored in in their own camp and and I liked the decisions that Liam Neeson was making they weren't always the right decision just as he says when they're at the cliff um it's it's an idea it might not be a good idea but it's an idea and it didn't do you know there were things that it didn't lapse into like you didn't have that moment where the wolves all backed them up to the edge of the cliff um that when when Hendrick uh, Dallas Roberts jumps into the tree, you don't see him. You don't you don't get to see this this false tense moment where uh, the other guys are going across the rope. That's just happening behind Dermot Moroni while he's considering what he's going to do. I love the way this movie is put together. I think it's just put together beautifully, and I think it is very existential. And you know, so that so I can look over the or I can overlook moments where Liam Neeson says, "Run." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Breeze. <laughs> uh, the, the second to the second movie in two weeks where somebody's uh, foot gets caught in a rock. Untest um, your foot. Uh, <laughs> That's um, right, and he presumably drowns. That's right. Yeah. Um, what are you doing? Drowning. He says that. What are you doing, you idiot? To say nothing of the fact that it's it's beautifully filmed. It is just gorgeous. Sure. It's gore. It, it looks is. gorgeous, and and I and I really like the way it's structured. Um, Let's talk a bit about how it looks. It's a cinematographer named uh, Takayanagi, uh, and he has done a lot of smaller things. But his previous big movie uh, was one that Dingus made me watch. And as I said before, it's probably about the stupidest movie I've liked in the past year. Uh, he shot Warrior. Uh, it also has a very grainy look. And Warrior, uh, when I watch it, because I think it's in the same town, Warrior looks a lot like Deer Hunter uh, in that it's that working class town, uh, even though Warrior gets into like Atlantic City glitzy MMA fighting stuff. But uh, Takianagi has this, I, I don't think, I don't know if it's digital video, but it definitely looks like digital video. And in Warrior, it looked like a 70s Michael Cimino film. Here, it, it just it gave it this great grainy look. And certainly the... Mm-hmm. The way that it progressed from the the uh, the opening bit at that refinery or wherever they worked to the the snowy wastes to the forest areas to the the, the river, uh, just a beautiful beautiful staging and cinematography in this movie. I loved the look of it. That guy also was the second unit uh, uh, DP on the Eagle. By the way. Ah, very. Uh, <laughs> and and Frank Grillo was in Warrior as well, so I don't know. God, I hated, hated, hated Frank Grillo in Warrior, and I could not believe when I found out it was the same actor because I loved him in The Gray, but in Warrior, he is this kind of like he, he he's the isn't he the Beethoven uh, the guy who trains Thomas or trains Joel, Joel Edgerton to Beethoven? Yep. God, and he looks like some kind of like, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but he looks like this kind of really pretty gay aerobics instructor in Warrior. <laughs> and I hated him in that movie, but he was so good in this. So when I got out of the movie and looked him up, I was like, holy cats, it's that same guy. I loved Frank Grillo. Uh, and, Which uh, one was he in this? He was, the, like, he was the jerk, Diaz, the guy who was the uh, asshole. Who I, and I love the fact that they didn't do the conventional thing with the asshole character. You know, like Dingus is saying, you know, they he's the guy who is normally going to get killed early on, and he's going to get someone else killed. And you know, in any, for every disaster movie, there's one of these guys, and something terrible happens to him. Uh, and I love that they reserved this really poignant fate for him uh, in, a, in a character arc. They, I, I love the way that all the characters kind of got attention. Um, <sighs> yeah, me too. That guy Flannery, who is the asshole on the plane, uh, when Diaz shows up, he just becomes another guy, kind of, who's a little bit sympathetic all of a sudden. And then he lags behind, and that's it. 
Yeah, yeah, because we Joe Anderson we know from Crazies and I forget other movies, but uh, yeah, like the, the you think he's going to be along for a while to be kind of the comic relief fellow because uh, he has some great lines, you know, when, when when he says something about Liam Neeson turning into a werewolf, you know, he's the guy, <laughs> he's the guy who gets the equivalent of a joke at that point, and he just he dies kind of unceremoniously. I didn't even really realize at first that was him until a few scenes later. I was like, wait a minute, what happened to Joe Anderson? Oh, that was the one that got killed. Yeah, that's how he does in the crazies too. <laughs> There's that beautiful vi- visual image too of next to his body as he dies, yeah. the the wolf footprint filling with blood. That was great. I mean, there, the, the movie was very spare for the most part with that kind of like visual little moments like that, but that was a great one. I loved that. Uh, all right, Kelly Wan. Uh, so uh, get in, get in here and set us straight. Dingus and I are just going to babble on for a while about how. <laughs> Did you guys like the music? Yes, good lord, yes. It had this um, almost uh, sort of small, playful, minimal, Carter Burwell-esque tone to it. I loved the music, yeah. Too much music for my taste. Okay. Dingus, you're normally uh, real snooty about music. Were you okay with the music? No, I really liked it. It's a guy named Mark Streitenfeld who is uh, who's doing the mu- music for Prometheus, incidentally. Good, and the, and the Scots had a lot to do with this, by the way. They're they're producers on it, but uh, but I loved it. I thought it was I thought it was just enough. All right, Kelly Wan, next. Uh, too many uh, people dying, but not enough dying vastly. Now there were some there were some great. Uh, you you who's I, the gray? Jimmy Neeson. I think the gray is, uh, you know, it's just in a way you can think of the wolves as a, as a metaphor. The gray is just like it's a metaphor between life and death, you know, w- uh, yeah. will to live. I mean, I, I don't think, it, you know, it's not about a specific wolf or a specific character. Uh, I, and I loved that was the title. Um, also, I want to take issue a little bit with, you know, I, I totally understand where Kelly's coming from with the um, the close in, you can't tell what's going on mm-hmm. type of thing that's going on. Because... That's something that I usually complain about. And one of the things that I championed Immortals for, to my embarrassment, was <laughs> was how you can see all the fighting because of the way it's shot. And I really like that. And I usually hate it when you can't see. But but I like it here because I don't know how you make how you film or CG a wolf attack That's without making it look goofy. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't know how you do that. I mean, without you, you know. Sometimes you like have dogs with their tails wagging while they're attacking something in a movie, um, and I, and I just I don't I don't know how you make it look right. And I like that sort of I like the way that, that this handles it. It may not be perfect, but I would prefer that than than seeing some long shot of a wolf chewing on a guy's face. So there is uh, the the tail wagging killer dogs. The best instance of that is a movie with Michelle Rodriguez called Breed, where a bunch of teenagers are caught on an island where they're experimenting on killer dogs, and and they're just fun dogs that want to play. And even <laughs> even when someone's getting killed, you can see the dogs are playing, and it's fun. And even though there's like fake blood or whatever, it just doesn't work. Uh, another example where they try to do this. I think they're supposed to even be wolves in this movie, but clearly they're not. They're like some huskies or something. There's another horrible movie where teenagers get up on a uh, ski lift and get stuck there for the weekend and the movie's called frozen and uh, uh, one, of, one of them eventually jumps down they're way high up in the air and he breaks his leg and wolves come along and eat him uh, <laughs> and, i mean oh that's tragic and, but you're seeing down you know you're seeing from the perspective of the woman up still in the ski lift she's looking down and the jealous wolves, at first 
But the, the wolves are just these huskies that are just playing with the stuntman on the ground, and it right. just looks ridiculous. So uh, what what um, what the gray did is they had a combination of CG, real wolves, and animatronic wolves. Uh, and at times it kind of you could at times it looked a little chintzy, but I was okay with that. I mean because the the different wolves like the different moments each had a different kind of look. Like there were there were times where a wolf would need definite face time, and that was an animatronic wolf. And then there were cool moments like I, the wolf's eyes reflecting the torchlight, and that was like good for CG, I guess. And uh, and then seeing the wolves dart around in the trees, those were real wolves. And Carnahan actually said in an interview I read that working with real wolves because they're not domesticated animals, they're not like dogs. What was pretty much a binary proposition in that you could either get them <laughs> to run left or run right. <laughs> that was it. Uh, they're flanking us. <laughs> uh, but I, so I'm I'm with you, Dignus, in that I appreciate it. And plus, it Kelly Wan, it it sounds like you're wanting action sequence. It's like when Harold uh, when when Harold Perrineau gets killed by the bear in the edge. Awesome. I know it's awesome, and that's like an action sequence. And, and you think of how the edge ends with that silly thing with the the, the spike, where Anthony Hopkins is on the ground and he holds the spike up, and the bear jumps on him and impales himself on the spike. What a like dumb that, bear! I mean, that's what that's just such an action movie ending. Like that's what you're getting with the edge. I don't think I really I, I strongly protest that that is not what the gray is offering. These uh, are not action sequences, dude. If I see any movie character put broken bottles on his hand, I gotta see the next scene. Come on. The point of that, and Kelly Wand, is not whether the b- broken bottles work. The point of it is that he's going to try. Is that you know his decision is the point and not the outcome of it, which is Whether why I'm he, so glad that it ended where it ended. Uh, and my my yeah. audience, by the way, my audience giggled when he broke the uh, the the glasses, uh, the the little bottles. Um, they giggled and, and, with anticipation that was about to be dead. Well, and no, and then and that's right. And when, and Kelly Wan, like you have said, you love it in a movie that ends like this because you love the audience reaction. I got the same thing in my audience. They're like, oh, like, yeah, but I was doing it this time. I was with them. I usually. Um, uh, giggling at the audience, but in this, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't give me one clear shot of a wolf this whole movie. This is like the Battle of uh, Battle L.A., where you see all the uh, aliens in the preview. Well, but do you, do you sort of see what I'm saying, though, even if you don't agree, where I think the wolves aren't that important. This is not in Battle L.A., the aliens are important. In the gray, it's not about the wolves. It's about oh. the poem, to live and die. But I would like to know if he... If it was a draw, or he lived and died, or he died and then lived. There's no way he makes it out of that. No matter what happens, there's no way he makes it out of that situation. But Dingus, the GPS watch is beeping. That's a good point. Right. That. And that, that was enough for my mom to go, oh, yeah. He's remarried already. He's had new kids. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel's going to be his kids. Kelly Wan, like, wolves. and isn't isn't the reveal again not the battle? The reveal is why Liam Neeson knows what he knows about death, and it's because his before. wife didn't leave. Him. No, you you thought before his wife left him and he broke up. I loved that reveal that you know that he understands that death is washing over someone. He understands that there's a warmth because it's something he's gone through with his wife, and that you don't know that until that flashback in the den. Where his own death, you know, this this huge CG metaphorical imposing angry faced animatronic dog of death out of focus, you know, it's shot over his shoulders, moving into focus. You know, then he has the flashback where you realize that that his being apart from his wife is because she died from cancer, not because they broke up or because something that he had done. That's a reveal at that point. And that is 
that is the centerpiece of the movie for him. You know, you said the final action centerpiece was uh, Frank Grillo looking out at that that mountainscape. The that was that was fantastic, and that camera, yeah, it was like the camera was death. I love that one camera. Yeah. Book. The camera moving down and tilting up a little bit to look up into the sky. That was just, I loved that moment. So so many of these deaths, like th- that was kind of the centerpiece. The, the actual fight he had with the wolf didn't matter. Just like what but, happens to Frank Grillo, uh, to, just like what happens to Diaz, doesn't matter. But the first line of his dad's poem is into the fray. Not the last line. It opens with a fray. So it means we get to see the fray. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that you mentioned that 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 last shot, Tom, because suddenly it it calls to mind what Tak Fujimoto is doing at the beginning of Silence of the Lambs when uh, when Jodie Foster is running through the course ah. and, and the camera comes up to the sky and it, the, a lot of that the way that it's shot reminds me of that. I love the way this movie is shot. Yeah, well, they, and that's the thing is Joe Carnahan for me is such a like I, I have not seen his first movie, but I really liked Narc. And then he did Smoke and Aces, which was kind of a big, expensive, uh, huge cast throwaway. Yeah, it was entertaining. Uh, and I, I, I mean that in every sense of the word. But Yeesh. then he did, uh, uh, I guess, A-Team after that? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Smoke and, yeah, which I liked A-Team, you know, big. The I remember that argument. It's plenty entertaining. But now he does this, which is much closer to NARC, and which has none of... You know, it has none of the kind of energy that's in the A-Team. It has a lot of energy and a lot of craft to it, and it has a very clear focus. You know, Kelly Wand, I know that Joe Carnahan can do kick-ass action sequences. There's a fantastic, I think, a sniper. Isn't there? Isn't there a great sniper action sequence in Smoke and Aces? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I only saw the ending because I wanted to see who lived. Well, we know Joe Unlike Carnahan can do action sequences. If he chooses not to do an action sequence in The Grey, I feel there's a reason for it, and it's not because he doesn't know how to do it. It's because that's not what kind of movie this is. All right, let me just say this. What if it's just a sequence, and it's not an action sequence? Well, there you go. You want to set it to credit sequence. If you want to sequence the, uh, the, 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 the way that Diaz decides to lay down and the way that they introduce their first names to each other, that's a sequence, Kelly Wand. That's great. And now We're crossing the, crossing the chasm. The, you cross the, the chasm. chasm. Yeah, the cross the chasm is good. It's a great sequence, and it's a sequence. And I watched it and enjoyed it. And I went, all right, oh, that's worth a few dollars. Think about what he chooses not to show you in that sequence. Yeah. What the guy, the first guy, and all the other people. Yeah, I just love what he chooses not to show you. Like Tom said, and I think it's a great point that I didn't think about, is that he could show you those things if he wanted to. He's shown he's adept at that, and he chooses not to, and I love that. What if he shows you all those people crossing unscathed, and then he skips the sequence where the guy dies? Good point. Take that. <laughs> I did watch his first movie this week. Um, oh, how, how does that, what is that like? It's like it's, watching a Kevin Smith movie. Yee. Oh. It's uh, it's called Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane. Um, and you can see a lot of style there, but it's very uh, student filming and um, very uh, indulgent. He's in it. It's okay, but what's what, what I took away from it was that he really grew beyond it. And I don't know what his, you know, what his career arc is or what the trajectory is or, or how he did that. But he made this movie. It's got a lot of style to it. It's a little bit amateurish, but fine. Uh, it's got kind of a neat vibe to it. And I understand why people like it. Uh, but the weird thing is, and I, again, I'm a big fan of Kevin Smith, but I definitely got that Kevin Smith vibe while watching it. And what I just sat there thinking was Kevin Smith never really grew beyond that. 
but he did that by choice and he makes his money and that's fine. Uh, but it's fascinating to watch that and then watch this and see how Joe Carnahan has grown as a director. And to know that he can still do crap like a team. <laughs> I, mean, right. uh, I enjoyed a team. Yeah, it was entertaining. I watched it the same way. Just to be um, as that line. <laughs> They're trying to fly the tank. Like annoyingly. <sighs> Uh, Kelly Wan, one of the things you have to do with a movie like this is, if you look at this as a realistic drama, this movie... Okay, but that's the thing, is you can't... That's the problem. That's not what this movie's going to be. If if that were the case with this movie, it would last all of 20 minutes. You know, there is no reason... It would be the greatest movie ever. You go, wow, I thought it was going to be 90 minutes. Kelly Wan, I invite you to watch a movie. Here's a movie for you to watch. i got two movies to watch. Uh, Open Water, not quite. That's how I prefer my nature... Well, here's a similar one. There's one called Blackwater, uh, an Australian director named uh, Andrew, I think his last name is pronounced Trocky, uh, did a movie about three people versus a crocodile. And it, it there's a reason that it doesn't go on. It actually starts out, I should say, as four people versus a crocodile. And there's a reason that it lasts longer than 15 minutes. He finds that reason, and he makes it part of the movie, and it's plausible, and it's not an existential message. I mean, it's just, it's pretty much a straight-up horror film, and it's good. It works. He then went on to basically kind of remake it, but with a fatal accident that the movie he remade shouldn't have lasted any longer than 10 minutes. So Andrew Trockey's second movie is called The Reef. And The Reef is about, how many of them? There are five people on a boat, and the boat turns over in the middle of, they're, they're sailing around Australia, like out in the ocean, the Pacific somewhere, and the boat turns over, and the characters are on the, the back of the overturned boat, and they're like, rats, this boat is being swept out to the open sea, <laughs> no one is going to find us, so <laughs> yeah. what we have to do is get in the water and swim back to the island we came from, and then we'll be eventually rescued, because this we're just going to die of, of thirst on the back of the boat like this. Right. So they get in the water, and one of the five characters is like, wait a minute, there's sharks in the water. Oh, yeah. And the the, the super the marine biologist type guy, I don't know that's what, he's Hooper. Really, what he really is, the Hooper kind of guy, he's like, no, no, that's kind of, we're, we just stick together, it'll be okay, probably not going to happen. <laughs> so one guy is like, well, I'm not going with you guys, forget it. And he stays on the boat, you never find out what happens to him. The other four characters get in the water, and they have miles to swim, you know, but they've got little things to float on and a kickboard, and they brought bottles of water, so they've yeah. got to swim. But early on, a shark, one of them sees a big old great white shark. That movie should have ended. Ten minutes later, <laughs> but instead yeah. it ends up being a stupid movie about the shark picking one of them at a time off. I mean, there's no good reason the shark just doesn't come in and, and get yeah, them because the movie is really stupid. Uh, it's it's just the characters make stupid mistakes. Just every now and then the shark has to eat one of them. The reason that that doesn't happen in the gray is because it's not about wolves attacking men. That's uh. you know that's not what this movie is. Um, Hey, were they just? Did they all die on the plane? And they just hallucinated the rest, and uh, the others are there. What? Actually, he shot himself in the mouth. Uh, <laughs> That's right. This is what it was. Al Creek at the moment of his death. The yes. current said Al Creek. Good dingus. I like dingus's uh, synopsis. Can I replace mine with that? <laughs> yes. And Carnahan's. I'm suspicious we can't find the story though. If it's like so awesome. Like, I want to see if it's like, uh, what's that story of the open boat? Was that, uh, what's his name? Stephen Crane? Like, nature's pitiless and doesn't give a shit. Uh, I think do, I'm quoting verbatim from Stephen Crane's story there. <laughs> that does sound like his prose. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what he's trying to say. I don't know what the subtext there was. Well, did it, did it remind you much of 127 Hours? 
Um, yeah, but that had an awesome climactic sequence. So it reminded me of only the first hour. Well, there you go. Because 127 hours, they're both movies about kind of the uh, the enormity of 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 how little nature cares about you and uh, a man, you know, being caught in the throes of that. They're, they're both movies about that, but one movie is a true story about a guy who came through that experience and derived from it this, this kind of meaning, you, you know, he survived and he appreciated his life. And, you know, like I said, he, he got some meaning from it. He got a family out of it. And so it's an optimistic look back at that, at that event. Whereas the gray doesn't really have that. We well, you know, let's talk about that. What is the, Although, is the gray optimistic? Like, do you guys see it as a bleak movie? Yeah. But also, I was going to say, another thing that's that's similar, or should be, is the James Franco character in 127 Hours is like a train. Like, he's he's kind of a badass. Like, he's not... He's kind of experienced at what he's doing. Yeah. Well, it's a realistic survival drama about a guy, a survivalist. Right, who would do what naturally is there. Well, yeah. it's, and it, right. it's, it's, about, it's about what he really did because it actually happened to a dude who lived through those 127 hours. Right. Telling his story about what he did to live in those 127 hours. Whereas, go on, the Gray, finish your sentence. Well, the Gray, he's supposed to be a badass, and he's supposed to know about survival and wolves, but he, I mean, he doesn't save anyone or himself or do anything smart in the whole movie. Like, he seems like really either has a death wish still and he's just taking them all down with him or Kelly want did the bang sticks. <laughs> did the bang sticks work? What's a bang stick <laughs> about a gun? Is that your uh, no, the, the Native American sticks. word for gun? The just firewater. Like, work. Just like they made in Phantasm, the kid made in Phantasm with the hammer, uh, you know, the shotgun shells on the pointed sticks. Oh, yeah, yeah. See? Yeah, those totally worked. See, <laughs> except in train. Wait, what were you going to say something else about something else about something else? Uh, well, you were trying to tell me that Liam Neeson was dumb and I and that he did nothing, but he he did at least kill one wolf with a bang stick. So there you go. No, they all killed that one with CG. Yeah, but Liam Neeson taught them how to make bang sticks. Also, Liam Neeson had the high ground. Uh, I love, by the way, and I think so too did Joe Carnahan. Uh, his like his eyes and the lines in his face and his skin and especially his hands, like yeah. those those flat, just ch- sort of chapped fingers. I mean, God, that it's just again part of just like the landscape was beautiful. Like I loved the, just how scruffy and weathered the guys looked in this movie. Kelly, on one of the things yeah. that you love about the thing is that it's about forty year old dudes who are not teenage actors. They're not pretty. And we rarely see that in movies. So surely you at least can appreciate. And then you get this early on. You know, when they're all filing onto the airplane, uh, it's just it's just like it just looks like working class dudes from Alaska who haven't shaved in three months. Like I loved that. And I like their reactions to the turbulence. Like they, they're totally ignoring it and not giving a shit, even though Liam Neeson's sleeping through most of it. And then there's like one particular jump. They're just like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then, but then they cut to six hours. Like you think, oh, now that now it's going to be this final destination sequence. I love that cut because it, yeah, yeah. it, it establishes yeah. their breath. Yeah, and the breath yeah, is going yeah. to play a part going going forward. You know, uh-huh. the the CG breath is going to be important, and they establish that on the plane. 
And that's something that I'd never, we've seen so many cool air, airplane like wreck sequences. And I'd never seen anything like that before. You know, that the cabin's depressurized and they're frost, the frost is coming out of their mouths. I loved that touch. It was like men in a morgue or something. Like that. Right. Great, chilling vibe to it. Yeah. It, was, it was new. I'd never seen that before. I like I really how frail life is in the darkness, too. Like we're just trying, struggling against. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Kelly Wan, sounds like you're getting on board with that kind of metaphorical I like that angle part. that I'm talking about. Okay, all right. Yeah. You might talk yourself into liking this movie if you're not careful, Kelly. No, because that's when I believed in those characters. And the, the more the movie went on, the less I believed in all of the characters. Did you not like their uh, – they each have their own little USS Indianapolis confessional monologue. Did you not like that little sequence? Because I, I personally like that. As it was going on, I was like, oh. Well, how do they know they're this, about to die? <laughs> this, this could get really bad. Is this going to work? And then by the time it came around Liam Neeson's turn, I was like, oh, what's he going to bring to the table? And by the time that scene was over, I was like, wow. You know what? You guys pulled that off. Good for you. Like I thought that worked. Did that? I work? thought, man, that's ten minutes that they could have used to shoehorn in a wolf versus broken glass sequence. <laughs> everything. Get our cake eating it too. You get your Indianapolis because Jaws. You would have said, oh yeah, you know what? The perfect ending to Jaws would have been uh, as the boat sinking. It just goes directed by Steven Spielberg. And, uh, <laughs> Shark eats Brody or not. It ends with with, uh, like a life jacket floating, and then Tom goes, See, that means something, something. And Dingus is all, No, yeah, uh huh. (laughs) That's how you people talk. Jake. Now, I know you didn't like Liam Neeson's character, Kelly, but did you like him in the movie? He's a good actor, but I felt he was miscast because he just seems too competent to be doing the things that this character was doing. I don't know how reliable this is, but I, I did see this might have been one of those like IMDb trivia things. But but I did see that uh, at one point they were in talks to have Bradley Cooper in the lead. Oh. <laughs> what do you think of that, Kelly Wand? Would that have worked better for you? Uh, Bradley <laughs> just Cooper would take a drug and then be able to do it all. Oh, best <laughs> ten, top ten of 2011, according to one famous critic on the Internet. So the opposite. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I'm. And you guys are easy, just unlike American audiences who don't like. Oh, 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 did you guys see the Battleship trailer with Transformers in it? <laughs> uh, yes, that's one trailer I, I did watch. What the hell was that? Transformers are in the. Uh, never mind. Why are we talking about it? <laughs> I don't know. You seem to really want to get that in, though. It just. <laughs> it's all I was thinking about during the gray, so it might have tainted my opinion of the gray. You were you were wanting the battle the Battleship movie, okay. Right. Is that going to be a hot extract? No, I, I was hoping there'd only be there'd be way more Transformers in the Battleship movie than this. <laughs> well, we don't know. That's a Peter Berg movie. I think it's a big summer release. So, uh, and there did seem to be robots in it. There were not that many robots in the Gray. Speaking of robots, uh, <laughs> what was the deal with the GPS watch? I wasn't clear. Was that supposed to? Like why isn't there a salvation? Is my question. <laughs> yeah, what is what was that watch? And what's you pull an antenna out? Dingus, you're a survivalist. You know this stuff. You've been lost in the desert and gotten this out. What right. was the deal with that watch? It sends a beacon. It sends a beacon forty thousand miles up, and then that beacon tells everybody That's where you are. Yeah. Oh. Tells no. the watch company where it is, and they're like, "We don't want that huh. watch." Good to know. I guess he's. But that's not that's not how a GPS works though. GPS does not send out any information though. Next, I know a grenade pin blows up werewolves. Yeah. One, two, three, not only you and me, 
<laughs> sorry about that. I was just thinking about collecting rubber. No, I'm sorry. And you know what? That I wanted it to be like the end of the gray, like. Hey, yeah, mid sense. One, two, three. Oh, okay. It was no meant to be podcast. Let's do a three by three. What do you guys think of that? Did I win the argument? Yes. Lose every argument. The argument you won, Kelly Wand, is that you did not like the gray. No. I think we all agree on that. And that Battleship trailer is all I want to talk about. Because <laughs> it seems so embarrassing. Uh, now, Peter Berg has done big budget action movies before, such as Hancock. Were you a fan of that, Kelly Wand? No. It ends no? with uh, more... It's the same as the Cray. It, it it jacks you out of an ending. That's really trendy now. Thanks, Sopranos. Uh, you know what? Let's not let's uh, save that for the spoiler portions of the podcast, which is not what this is. Uh, this is our three by three, uh, where we are going to talk about our three favorite moments where the audience knows something that the characters don't know. Uh, when I introduced this last week, I mentioned some sort of a Hitchcock anecdote, which I have since looked up and doesn't necessarily <laughs> relate to what I was getting at. Uh, but I'll explain it anyway. Hitchcock, uh, in illustrating the difference between suspense and surprise, posited this idea of what if you're watching a scene of two people at a table and, the, and a bomb goes off and kills them, that's surprise. However, if you're watching two people at a table having a conversation and you know there's a bomb underneath the table that's going to blow up, that is suspense. Uh, so, but that's also, it's funny. But that's also an example of the audience knowing something and how that, that the characters don't know. So that would be a viable choice for this uh, this three by three. Uh, the example that I took off the table was a, a great moment from House of the Dead, a horror movie we all like, where a character House of the Devil. God, yeah. He's thinking of uh, yeah. <laughs> thinking of that Uve Bull thing. No yeah. one likes. Uh, in House of the Devil, a character is at a door, and she goes away from the door, and then the camera shows us what's on the other side of the door. The audience knows. The character doesn't. So I've taken that off the table, as well as every single thing made by Alfred Hitchcock, because I'm sure there's great examples in there, and I want other things from you guys. But there are plenty of examples of this. In horror movies, you'll famously see a monster in the background, uh, or maybe there's a scene where characters are on a rope bridge, and you see a rope fraying. There's a, you know, there's a poisoned drink or a bolt coming loose. There's lots of examples. So what I'm looking from each of us are favorite examples of those. Uh, Kelly Wan, you are introducing the topic next week. Was this a difficult topic for you? Because it ended yeah. up being hard for me as well. This was hard for you? Yeah, I felt I, because at first I was like, all right, I want to take this seriously and not break it. But then every example I thought of, as you'll see, uh, is probably not what you mind. Okay, well that's that's fine. This is uh, there are three judges here, so we'll all rule on whether or not your choices are, are acceptable. Uh, Wait, I'm a judge too, and I can rule that I'm unacceptable. Like you can you can rule out your own choice. Yeah, you can veto it. All right, because my number ones or my number three is really bad. Oh, well, let's get to it. What is your number three that's really bad? Something where the audience knows something, but the characters don't. Hey, but if if uh, Joe Carney had made a movie where the bomb's about to go off and the timer goes down to one second and then the movie ends, you guys would, like, love it. Ha-ha! <laughs> gotcha. Okay, no. My number three is... Uh, we actually made that movie. So that's not what I was referencing. <laughs> Although you didn't quite finish it, if I remember correctly. So in a way, it's even more. Uh, what you guys are talking about is uh, me and Dingus and a friend of ours named Ryan Horner and another friend named Troy Vincent all made a short film 
about guys who discover a nuclear bomb and then decide they're going to see if it's actually a nuclear bomb and they they take it out in the desert and they turn on the timer and we thought it would be cool if the movie ended right when the timer hit zero so you don't know if it blows up or not so and we actually shot that and the footage is out there somewhere and just never got edited together and they're like but... the mice and men characters like one of them is retarded or something right uh yeah one of them's like smart or one of them I mean, they're, yeah they're they're two different george I believe. along those lines but anyway yeah so that, that and was... i think i remember emailing you like hey the bomb should go off because people want to see that so it's the same dumb argument <laughs> on my end i think i'm the dumb one i think we all agree on that. well let's get on to our three by three uh rather than spoiling you think uh, i'm dumb there what do you hear these all right, so what is your number three choice for something the audience knows but the characters don't? All right, this is a terrible example, and it's the only one like this, I think, maybe. Okay. Um, so I apologize in advance if this isn't what you meant, because uh, I kind of wanted to like show you I can do your topics, even if you think mine are dumb, Mr. Chick. Right. Topic breaker. Uh, when did I break uh, it? I don't never mind. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Oh, dude. <laughs> don't even get me started. Check the forums. No, don't check the forums. That's always that way lies madness. Uh, my number three is the movie Alien, because they don't know they're in a horror movie called Alien. <laughs> they think they're in a movie called Miners Going Home. It's going to end with sex and shit. Whereas most horror movies, characters are fully aware of what they're in for. So you've right, got right. Right. So it's like the they don't know the credits just played with the word Alien. All right, Kelly's number three choice is Alien, because none of the characters is aware, unlike something like <laughs> Synecdoche, New York, for instance. In that movie, I think you could argue that the characters know they're in, in a play or a movie. In Alien, it, not the case, therefore. Right. Okay, good. But sometimes, you see, so if you if you think you're in a sex comedy, or you hope you are, but you're actually the, the <laughs> fifth-billed actor in a horror movie, you'll be bummed. But if you were Dorothy, and you've and you found out you were in a movie called The Wizard of Oz, then you wouldn't be worried about the tornado. You'd go, oh, all right, well, I know I live to see a magic huckster, at least. Excellent point. So I can just take a nap here in the barnyard. Like all right. Thursday. Kelly's number three choice, Alien. Dingus, what do you got that tops that? <laughs> and Dingus, was this a tough one for you? What did you think of this topic? It was really tough. I, yeah. I really, I spent the week. I really, really wanted to do ones that nobody, because one of the, one of the things you did was say characters, um, and I thought, yeah. can I can I find ones that none of the characters, none of the, characters. the audience knows, yeah. and none of it, and that was really hard. Uh, and I ended up not being able to really do that. But I thought uh, that too, Dingus. I thought the exact. But I, but I loved it because it, you know, this is this is kind of a mental game. The three way three is a mental game I get to play all week long, and and this one was tough. Yeah. All right. Well, what did you come up for your number th- with for your number three spot? All right, I'm gonna give you guys a quote from. It. Ah, yes, sweet. I'm looking forward to this. I think I'm gonna get it. Go ahead. Oh, that's disgusting. Ah, oh, terrible quote. <laughs> I have no idea. That does not I know help. It Kelly is. Wand, did that help you? What is it, Kelly Wand? I think it's the fly, but I don't know what. Yeah, it's the fly. It's when he's, oh, he doesn't know the flies in there, right? right. Yeah, he doesn't know the ah. the flies in there, and we do. And and Cronenberg clearly shows. I don't I don't remember the first one. I apologize, but I'm talking about the Cronenberg one. The Cronenberg shows us the fly going in there. He doesn't know that's what's going on. Nobody in the movie knows that's what's going on, obviously. And then gradually he 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 comes to find out what that is. But at the moment, it's it's information only the audience is given. See, that's perfect. I love that. Yeah. Dingus. Well, That's see, again, he doesn't know he's in a movie called The Fly, or he. Would... <laughs> so, Dingus, it works on multiple levels, even. <laughs> the Fly doesn't know it's in there with Goldblum, so the Fly character doesn't know. Um, so, what what movie does he think he's in, Kelly? I'm just curious. 
uh, telepod success sex with Gina Davis. <laughs> What's the name of that magazine? Article or something? Telepod success with Gina Davis sounds awesome. Yeah, ready? He thinks it's on Skinamax based on stocking, which also turned into a fly. Oh, man, Shim that's good. Later. <laughs> All right. Well, I also this was a tough one because I just loved the shot from uh, House of the Devil and was sure that over the course of the week I would come up with plenty of other awesome examples like that. And the week was going on and I wasn't. And I started going through looking at the movies on my shelves and was having a hard time. It's and cheating. Well, no, I cheat all the time. I went. By the way, I went through my net. You can go to Netflix and click on. You know, you used to be able to look at what other people, your friends, yeah. rated movies. You can't, but you can look at your own ratings history. What? So I, I went down and I was looking at my own ratings history, trying to pick out movies that would work for this. I ended up, I'm very happy with the three I came up with. But I discovered a couple of weird things about myself. When you look over your own ratings history, what, here's one little factoid: I gave Big Lebowski four stars. Yeah. I know. I fixed when? that. Don't worry. I don't know. But at some point, I'm clicking uh-huh. movies like, oh, Big about Yeah, four stars next. What'd I you get on that? Uh, I don't know. Probably five stars. So uh-huh. You should have to fill out some sort of essay in order to change that. <laughs> you can't change it either. You can't nope. go, hey, you know what? Now I get Empire Strikes Back. No, you can go look at Netflix. You'll see that I gave Big Lebowski five stars. So I don't know what you guys are talking about. Here's another thing I found out. There's a movie called In Her Shoes starring Tony <laughs> Collette. And Cameron Diaz that I have apparently seen and liked. What? That's your one of your girlfriends. Obviously, I have, I have no idea when I saw that, what it's about, or why I gave hated it. it. I have much to say on this film. <laughs> so, the characters understood each other better once they changed shoes. So that taught me a little something about wolves. I don't know. It's a, it's a fun game you can play with yourself. But so anyway, I came up with three things that I do like. Uh, my number three choice is odd because it's not often this is a matter of like something you do to create suspense. Uh, for my number three choice, it's not at all a matter of suspense. This is a minor spoiler, but about a, a minor a subject that doesn't really matter in the movie. But my number three choice is at the end of a movie called Gridlocked with Tupac Shakur and Tim Roth. Uh, it's about them. They're, they're heroin junkies. And it's a, a movie about a couple of days where they're trying to kick heroin. And the movie opens with their girlfriend, a woman that they're friends with, uh, played by Thandie Newton, goes in the hospital and uh, has, has an overdose and they take her to the hospital. And that impels them to think, you know what? Fuck, we should quit doing heroin. And the movie's about that. So at the end of the movie, they end up in a hospital, and Thandie Newton is discharged from the hospital, and she is trying to call them on the phone at their house, and they're not there because they're in the same hospital. And the movie is about these characters uh, sort of at different points in their lives, moving in different directions. And then at the very end, you see Tupac Shakur and Tim Roth sitting in the emergency room waiting to be seen. And through the window, you see Thandie Newton at a payphone trying to call them. And even though the characters at these different points, they've all sort of come together again, and they're trying to reach each other. And I love the fact that we, the audience, see that they're together, even if they don't know that yet. And the movie actually ends with them. They're all in a band together. It ends with them doing a musical number with each other. Uh, but I love that last shot where the audience knows they're together even though the characters don't know that. So there's my number three is Gridlocked, which, Kelly Wan, you still haven't seen, I'm guessing, right? No, I'm a racist. I don't see those movies. <laughs> Two Fox Shakur is so good in that. And Tim Roth. Oh, man. All right. Any chance to bring up Gridlocked, I support. I like that because I can see that shot you're talking about, and that's kind of the – yeah, that's good. I like yeah. that. 
Uh, I saw in an interview, so that was also on my 3x3 for best sidekicks. And while I was making sure that I had that, see that I remembered it correctly, I was just reading up some stuff where, where Tim Roth was talking about having worked with Tupac Shakur. Uh, he characterized the relationship, not as sidekicks, but whereas Tupac Shakur was acting, was like his dad in that movie. Uh, uh, and I just loved reading that detail. You know, I love how do actors sort of frame the relationships between amongst themselves in movies. And that, that that's how Tupac Shakur and Tim Roth sort of thought of it, is that like, <laughs> that Tupac was Tim Roth's dad. I loved that. Uh, you gave that one three stars, right? <laughs> that was right up there in the five star category. I'm, I'm like Big Lebowski. Just so you know, go check. You guys can check right now. What'd you give the Battleship trailer? I don't do trailers, Kelly Wand. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wand. So now that you're down to your top two, it sounds like you actually have choices that you are happier with than your number. Yeah. Three. What is your number two choice for? They're not as dumb. All right. What do you got for number two? This one I'm kind of bummed about discussing because it's kind of spoilery. Okay. And it's also cool. Oh, go ahead. Well, and also, I don't think it's a movie you guys have seen or give a shit about, so I'm just going to, which will make it, you guys won't have anything to say, so we'll just have to rush past it and get on to the next Vinyan reference or uh, (laughs) Earth, probably. Uh, JK. No. Uh, But uh, at the end of Dr. Zhivago... Did you guys see that? No. All right. No. You don't know how that movie ends? Uh, that's Omar Sharif in a sled, I think. <laughs> I like you and your comical behavior. I think I'm close, though, aren't I? Uh, basically, the whole movie is totally unmemorable, except for a part where there's some frozen furniture in a house. But uh, at the end, there's this really great, uh, iconically awesome cinematic bummer, because... Uh, Julia Christie's character's, uh, he's on a bus going to work and he hasn't seen her in years because he's like sent her off to save her life or something for 20 years. I don't remember. I'm not Russian. And so he's going to work on a tram and he sees her outside like 20 years later. He's like, Ugh. So he tries to get off the tram and to see her and then he has a heart attack and then he just dies and she doesn't notice or see him. So he dies not knowing she's carrying his child. Ah, that's a good one. Very soap opera-y, but uh, very good. That sounds like a Russian novel. Yeah, so you got to go Wait. through three hours to get to that bummer. Like he hasn't seen her in twenty years, and she's carrying his child. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait a minute. There's, I well, in Russia, not... according to Yakov Shvirnov, the baby has you, so it works differently. Yeah, that doesn't make sense, Dingus. That's a good point. But anyway, I know that's exactly what happens because uh, I'm I'm Russian. Uh, Dingus, why haven't you seen Doctor Zhivago? Yeah, you racist. <laughs> I have. I just thought he was talking about that doctor in that Human Centipede movie. <laughs> Theater Laser. Oh. Knock knock. Who's there? Human Centipede. Human Centipede who? Human Centipede Doctor Zhivago. It's <laughs> the worst joke ever. Uh, Dingus, top that. I can't. That's perfect. But I'll, I have a quote from my number two anyway. All right, what do you got? Mistakes? We don't make mistakes. Uh, adjustment bureau, again. <laughs> uh, I don't. This is a, this is a terrible quote. It's not a very that's not a very quotable quote. I don't know, Dingus. All right, here's a better quote. Uh, this is your receipt for your husband, and this is my receipt for your. Ah, yes. Now, what what in Brazil does a character not? Well, yeah. What it is Brazil, right? Yes, it is Brazil, and it's another fly, actually. 
And it's the fly uh, that falls that falls into the typewriter or whatever it is that call, uh, causes Tuttle to become uh, right. Yes. And nobody knows but us that this is what has happened. And then gradually other people start to understand that there was a mistake. And nobody wants to say that it was their mistake because bureaucracies don't make mistakes. And it wasn't our mistake. It was somebody else's mistake. But we know as the audience and we're the only ones who know that that's how it happened. Kelly Wan, do you think he's going to get a fly-themed uh, number one pick? Instead of the butterfly effect, it should be the fly effect. <laughs> and yes. We'll Wait, what out. other fly movies are there? Well, don't don't guess because you might ruin it. We'll find out. I know J Lo was pretty fly back on the door. Uh, it seems like Dingus might have set this task for himself to make all of them about flies. Uh, we'll find he's out. He's a hard taskmistress. Uh, all right, Brazil, the number two pick. Very good, Dingus. My Wait, number. Hey, who oh, yes, know yes. That? Oh, everybody. Well, the audience, we do see the we do see the mistake in the printer, but presumably we, as the audience, are the only ones that knows it. The bureaucracy never knows it. I don't know that it ever gets straightened out. Um, it's definitely <laughs> something so. where, where you know, Terry Gilliam's like, okay, I'm going to show you in the audience something that no character knows. This is going to be the foundation for the movie. Check this out. You've seen it. Now we're going to go over to our characters. Take it away, movie. But the fly knows it's dead, unlike the fly and the fly. Which well, the fly, the fly was dead before it fell into the typewriter. That's the thing. Mm. The happy ending that Universal wanted was that Michael Palin's torturing the fly at the end, instead of what's his face, Robert De Niro. All right. Well, fly. you can uh, when you buy the Criterion version of Brazil, that's included. Just so you know, there are I think three different versions of the movie in there. Is it, does American Flyers have flies in it? That bicycle movie. You know, we'll find out when Dingus does his number one. Yeah, we'll see. All right, my number two. Uh, now I'm going uh, in a slightly different direction. My number three and my number one are great movies. Not the case with my number two. But I just love this as an example of, you know, audience knows something, the characters don't, and suspense occurs, and it's, it's used to great effect many, many times over a long string of movies. But I am uh, picking one specific moment in the most recent of this string of movies, and that's in Final Destination 5. <laughs> the, the scene with the, uh, the screw with the pointy end up on the balance beam while the gymnast chick is jumping around and doing flips and doing the pas de deux or whatever she's doing up there. And we on the audience watch that screw sitting there as her foot moves around past it, and you just know she's about to step on it. She has no idea that screw is there. And the Final Destination movies are kind of built on this premise. Uh, to very, <laughs> no one's observant. The, the, no one's observant, but also that, that the, the universe is putting is, is sort of putting these elaborate machinations into motion that will eventually kill you. And that you, we as the audience watch these things happening. And the, and the characters sort of just are going about their daily lives, and they end up meeting some grisly fate. And the, the idea being that you then think... You know, in your day-to-day -day life, you know, what crazy things are being set up to kill me? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great formula for a movie, and it's worked with varying success. Sometimes they just do, like, a grisly car accident, and that's not nearly as clever. But that one sequence with that screw on that balance beam was so incredibly effective. It's in the trailer. I knew it was coming. But when I saw that in a theater, just the sort of the shared communal experience of the audience going, ah, you know, every time her foot lands near it. Uh, it's uh. just, it's, it's a great, it, it's, it, it was, even though it's a horrible movie, that was a really fun scene to watch in a crowded theater. 
Um, and and the, the sort of the irony of it is the, the main character never actually steps on the screw. It's such a cheat. And that's another thing that I hate about the stupid Final Destination movies is they end up being like sort of jokes about, hey, you think this person's going to die this way? Psych, it's something completely something different. Something totally far-fetched. And yeah, it has nothing to do with all this stuff we just showed you. Like I said, the screw, the girl, the gymnast doesn't, a, whole, a completely different character steps on the screw and she doesn't even die. The girl who dies is on those parallel bars and she just gets distracted and slips and lands wrong, <laughs> which has nothing to do with the setup of this. Because circle. death likes to fuck with you. I guess so. Even the audience as it well. Like, yeah, it wants you. Yeah, <laughs> it does the screw so that the character who slips and falls and doesn't even notice the screw doesn't even. Ever. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but it made, me, it made me think of that Hitchcock thing about the bomb, the difference between surprise and suspense. Because there's a there's a moment at the opening of a David Gordon Green movie called Undertow, where uh, I think it's Jamie Bell. He's like running from someone, and he steps on a nail, Ugh. and you just he just lands wrong on a board with a nail sticking out, and the board is stuck to his foot while he's running away still. Uh-huh. And there's that great sense of like, oh, I mean, it's it's like watching someone get stuck with a needle. I mean, you just respond to something like that. But in Undertow, it's out of the blue, whereas in Final Destination 5, there's the suspense of when is the girl going to step on the, the screw. Um, Answer, never. Never, exactly. Psych. Sucker. You're not saying the name of that movie correctly, Tom. Five, Five now. Destination in 3D. How's that? Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I tried to watch that. I couldn't get into it. Final Destination 5? No, it's terrible. Uh, Why would you try to watch I couldn't that? get past the, uh, even the first thing. The first, the first. No, there's no. Yeah, it has nothing to recommend. I mean, that screw scene is good, but you see what you need to see in the trailer. Just the. the uh, it's like the first one has that great bus thing, and then they've just ripped them that off and done it a million. Like they've just repeated it for four movies. Every. The uh, the I think it's the closing credits. Maybe it's the opening credits, but the, actually it might be both of them. The credit sequence in Final Destination Five. I don't know if they're all like this. Is just going back over all the kills from all five of the movies. They already did that in the fourth one. Oh, okay, yeah. So I think that's now they're ripping off their own credit sequence. Yeah, is the the credit sequence is just a, it's just a, a reference to remember when someone got killed by the fan blade from the motor. Now remember when someone got killed by the tanning bed. Now remember when someone got killed by the roller coaster. It's just like hey, remember how so good these movies nice. were. Uh, There's so many different things to impale people with. Yeah. So many different shapes. So many. Is number five the one with NASCAR at the beginning? No, that's yeah, four. four. Yeah, five, five, so I can do this. Uh, number one is the airplane. Number yes. two is the, uh, nice. the is the car wreck. Number three is the roller coaster. Four is NASCAR. Five is a bridge. But there's three that are car-based. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Out of five. Yep. A just bridge? Like yeah, you, you, you mentioned that before, but I don't remember what happens. Does Magneto there? No, it, it taps into your universal fear of being on a bridge, in that they're on a bridge and then the bridge collapses underneath them. Oh, okay. Actually, it's, it's definitely a reference to that horrible bridge accident in, I want to say, Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, a few years ago. Um, but yeah, so there, there's, just, there's a big suspension bridge and traffic is stopped on it and it starts to fall apart and people fall in the water. There you go. Just like Mothman prophecies. Ah, very good, Kelly Wand. That might be my number one, though. Hold on, don't ruin it. Remember the first Final Days Destination movie? They actually reacted like it was really happening and were bummed. Their friends were dying and were scared all the time. And then in the other ones, they just like make dumb jokes. I'm like, yeah. yeah, or like, or you know, Five played with this whole idea: if you kill someone, then you buy yourself, uh, you know, you you uh, get like out of the deal. Yeah, exactly, like a ring thing. Yeah, exactly. Does that work out for anybody, or do they just screw shit up? 
No, because that's the whole thing. Is you know they all. Went- why are they be? Why are why are people having the visions? If I was the screenwriter, I would invest. I would go with that line because I'm curious, like how this, like who's helping them? Tony Todd. Uh, no, he's the. <laughs> what? But he's I, uh, the gray. But another- <laughs> the gray butt. <laughs> Kelly, what is your number one choice for an example where the audience knows something but the characters don't? Okay, Dingus is going to think I'm trolling him, but I'm not. I actually think this is my favorite thing about the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm referring, of course, to my favorite Mel Gibson production number, Passion of the Christ, which... See? All right. Let me just, I'm just going to pitch this to you, Dingus. <laughs> because Jesus like- thinks he's in a musical. <laughs> No, no, he doesn't. He's the only one who knows. That's the thing that's interesting. It's like a Final Destination movie in reverse, because Jesus knows what's going to happen, which is a bummer. But everyone else in the movie doesn't know, and they act like it. It's like the Romans and the Jews, and even his mom, they don't know these events with like vast historical importance are being going down. Because usually in these movies, it's like there's this vibe of moral certitude on both sides. But in this one, like all throughout the movie, the Romans act super bored. Like, oh yeah, crucifixion. Like to them, it's just Thursday. Well, that I, you know, I I don't know how Dingus feels, but uh, I I like that choice, Kelly Wan, because it reminds me in a way of you know movies about events that we understand the importance right. of the event in a way that the characters in the movie don't. Right. And I, and the example I think of is is United ninety three. Right. I was, thinking, I was just going to say that. It's like you know, Passion of the Christ totally reminds me of United ninety three. It's like unaffected acting styles. Well, and, you know, they're both very different kinds of events, but they're both incredibly historical, relevant events to the people in the audience watching. I mean, they mean a lot to people watching these movies, and the, the movie doesn't necessarily, I don't know about Passion of the Christ, but United 93 doesn't pander to that. It just lets the events unfold normally, and you bring your own experience to, to be a part of that. Right, uh, like Titanic. Uh, uh, did you see what he did there, Kelly? Yeah, he's right in front of me. He's making, he totally did that to both of us. Can you believe that? I don't know why he's picking on you. Wow, I know. About 9-11, too. Oh, wow. Oops. You know what? Sorry. <laughs> Ingus, uh, obviously, is one of the terrorists. <laughs> wow, Dingus, that was harsh. harsh. You, know what, you know what he's it's doing? Too soon, one? Dingus, too soon. He's doing it because of his, his the director of Avatar. He just has to defend That's his number guy. one, because that flies in it, like CG <laughs> That uh, the character was trying to swat away. <laughs> oh, did you guys see the speaking of Sam Worthington, the trailer for Clash of the Titans two with Sam Worthington? We've talked about this. You apparently are sold on Wrath of the Titans. I have tried to explain to you, Kelly Wan, there's nothing there. Don't it's got the sucker punch music. It's exactly. Agree. If you want yeah. a cover of a eurythmic song in your again, movies, then just, go, yeah, then just go see Sucker Punch again. <laughs> if you love Sam Worthington and Sucker Punch, two huge box office draws. All right, so Dingus, how do you feel, though, about Kelly Wan's number one choice? What Does, it, does that approach work for you? Uh, I like it. I like it just fine. I just, uh, I think historical things are a little bit... It, it's a little bit weird because, sure. of course, of course, the audience knows what's going to happen because it's historical. It's not well, like the filmmaker is showing us something only we know and they don't know. It's just that we know because we know. 
But but not just historical though. Like I, the thing about Passion of the Christ United '93 is it's not so much that this stuff happened, but the people watching probably have strong opinions or strong feelings about what happened. You know, you're right about one angle to take is historical things, but but people who care about Jesus and the story of Jesus or believe in Christianity or whatever, they bring a certain kind of baggage to that that the characters don't necessarily have, and it's the same in a way with United '93. And it works either way. Like it works as a historical artifact, or as like or like this is they really didn't know what they did. Like that's what he said, but it's like they didn't even know that this was the day some important things were going to go down. Yeah, I, you know, Kelly, Wand, no matter who's on board with you, Kelly Wand, I appreciate your approach. That's uh, that's that's. I mean, a that's what I got to it, and good it on you. It was the first time I've seen that in a religious movie. Not to say religious movie, like it's some genre. Although I guess it like compared to this the 1950s stuff that we kind of laugh at now i think i don't know i've never seen that approach before like when i was a kid it's like in jesus of nazareth was on tv it's like oh hey i watch jesus of nazareth. it's like there was a sense of just importance and uh, never mind you know what i'm saying <laughs> uh temptation of the christ though the martin scorsese one doesn't uh, that that's different no? that was okay. that kind of did what what i'm talking about like you got the sense every character knew what was going on it was a big deal and that was more of a kind of a literary approach. I mean, that yeah. was more of a, yeah. yeah. There's a scene in My Passion of the Christ where it's like, they're trying to pick which implements to uh, to flay Jesus with, and the guy, like, hits the table with it. Like, he's, like, goofing around, and then, like, the overseer's like, oh, come on. <laughs> Quit screwing around, man. Yeah, it's, got, it's a lot of work to do. we got 50 people. I, to do. You know, I really like that idea. I really, really do, but I think it's, I don't know if it's the filmmaker showing us something that we aren't bringing with our own baggage. Probably not. But I like the idea. I definitely do like the idea, and I'm and I'm impressed that you brought up a Passion of the Christ without getting me angry about it. Uh, you know, I it's something that struck me about that movie, and it's something I think I responded to. Uh, never mind. All right, good. Kelly Wand, Passion of the Christ. Uh, my number one. Speaking of Passion of the Christ. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, this watch this segue. Uh, also, Wait. yes. I think it's my turn. Um, no, according to the list, you go next, Dingus. So, what All is right, your number my, one my choice? Is <laughs> <laughs> just tied in more. So he's changing the. Uh... Speaking of Passion of the Christ, Dingus, what's your number one choice? Yeah. And does it involve flies? Right. It does not involve flies. I'm sorry to disappoint you guys. I ah. didn't do a, a fly. We all know the parable of the fly and the mustard seed. Although, if you had done United 93, it would have been a no-fly list. Oh, too soon. Wow. wow. Not, only, not only too soon, Kelly Wan, but just bad. Can you, Kelly Wan, can you, can, you help, can you help Dingus punch up his jokes some? No, I can't. I'm not a puncher. <laughs> God. All right, Dingus, what is your number one choice for an example of the audience knowing something the characters don't? All right, I have a really long quote for this one, but I'm not going to bother with it because I don't think either of you have ever seen this movie or will care about it. Uh, I, no, actually, I think you probably both have seen it, but you're both going to think I'm an idiot for choosing it. And it's the movie It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> what an idiot. What a wonderful <laughs> idiot. picked a Christmas movie. All right. Uh, yeah. All right. This is uh, this is the this was the one that came to me earlier in the week, and the uh, the other two came to me today while I was sitting watching a musical, um, and I was thinking in my head, 
we assumed. Oh, by three by three. Uh, but uh, the "It's a Wonderful Life" moment is is one that I really I, I really love. It's a Wonderful Life, and it and it makes me all uh, happy and cry. And it's darker than you guys think it is. I don't know when's the last when's the last time you guys ever saw that? Never. Never. Uh, Tom, have I, you ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? Yes, yeah, for the first time, maybe five years ago. I guess I don't see movies that are complete sentences. It was it was fine, I guess. I mean, I you know, Jimmy Stewart's a likable fellow, and it's uh, it's, yeah. it's black and white, and it's got stuff that happens. So yeah, <laughs> it does have stuff that happens. That's good. It's like Scrooge, right? It's like he imagines he's dead, or it's like Groundhog Day meets. No, Christmas. it's got an invisible rabbit showing him around what would happen right. if he were if he, he changes wasn't Washington. <laughs> he punches Gary Cooper in the face super hard. I remember that. It is the famous every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, right, Dingus? That's it's a wonderful life. And then he gets back in everybody's apes. Right. Both of those things are true. <laughs> so what? What's the? Uh, I, I, everybody but me and Kelly knows it's a wonderful life, though. Right. So what is the? What is the bit where the audience knows something that the characters don't? All right. The the moment I'm talking about, and it's it's. Um, not as good. I don't want you know. Well, anyway, it's it's the moment where Uncle uh, his Uncle Billy, Uncle Billy Bailey, Uncle takes the is taking the deposit from the the building and loan to the bank. Um, this is a big day. This is the day before Christmas, okay. and um, the Bailey boys are about to celebrate the fact that uh, George Bailey's younger brother, George Bailey, being the Jimmy Stewart character, his younger brother is about to get the Congressional Medal of Honor for fighting in the war. On Christmas Eve. Sounds well, right. he's not going to get it on Christmas Eve, but he's coming home so that the town can celebrate the fact that this is going to happen. And it's on the front page of the newspaper, and the the town's really celebrating, except for Old Man Potter, who is you know very angry about everything in the world. And so, doddering old Bill Bailey is at the bank about to make the deposit for the building and loan, and he's filling out the deposit slip, and he sees Old Man Potter come into the bank. And he goes to needle him a little bit, because usually the Baileys are just this poor, downtrodden guys in town, and Mr. Potter owns everything. And he snatches the paper from Mr. Potter, and he says, hey, what's this on the front of the paper? He's getting the Congressional Medal of Honor. Ha ha. And he sla- and, and Mr. <laughs> Mr. Potter grabs the paper from him, and in the paper, wrapped in the paper accidentally, is the $8,000 that he was about to deposit. He just doesn't realize that happened. We don't. Nobody realizes that that happens, but the audience. And so Mr. Potter gets wheeled off, and Uncle Bill goes up to the uh, deposit window with his deposit slip. Where's the money? You forgot the money. And so they spend the next part of the movie. He runs back to the building alone, and he tells George. And they spend the next part of the movie looking for the money, combing everywhere, looking all over Bill's house, looking all over the streets, checking everything. And this is basically what sets the movie in motion in some ways that uh, George is going to decide to commit suicide because this will put them under because the bank examiner is here on the same day and George has to go to Mr. Potter and beg to get a loan. And Mr. Potter says, well, you're, you're committing fraud. So I'm going to call the police. Ha ha. And the meantime, he's had the money all along because Bill accidentally gave it to him. And we're, we, we see that happen. And then, Potter eventually figures it out, but we're the only ones who know for the course of the movie that that's what happened, that he gave the money accidentally to Mr. Potter. Uh, Dingus, mm. checking checking Netflix, I see that I have seen It's a Wonderful Life. I gave it one star fewer than I gave In Her Shoes. <laughs> Watching them back-to-back was probably a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, all right, so I'm sure, Dingus, that that will endure you to fans of old black and white movies quite a bit. Good choice. That's the uh, longest setup for a Three's Company esque <laughs> <laughs> switcheroo ever. Oh, Mr. Roper, it's in the other. Okay. <laughs> it's like a dumb mistake, but what are you going to do? Uh, you know what? Speaking of old black and white movies, and Passion, how's that for a segue? And Passion of the Christ, my number one choice, old black and white movie. I don't see many of those. Uh, I think I know. Do you? I think I do. No. What? You referenced it earlier in the podcast. Uh, I don't think I did. I've talked about it before. I don't think I talked about it. What, What do you think it is? Citizen Kane. Oh, good lord! No, I don't. I don't know that movie. It's a good book. Oh wait. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, Omar Sharif and the Sled. That's, you know. That, right, that's what I thought you were doing. No, I really thought that, that, that isn't Dr. Zhivago, they drive around in these sleighs and stuff, don't they? <gasps> yeah. Well, that's what I meant. But it's there's a war going on, so it's scary or passionate. Something. All right. Uh, no, no, so mine is not <laughs> Citizen Kane. Uh, it is about... Um, a knight who has come back from the Crusades, who's living huh. in a, it's not quite a castle, it's like a manor. Uh, he lives there, and his daughter goes to town one day. Uh, and on the way to town, she is raped and murdered by bandits. He doesn't know, of course, because they don't have the internet, and she can't text him and whatever. This is medieval days. Then the bandits come to his manor, and they stay there for the night. Because they're just they're traveling, and that's how you traveled around in ancient Sweden uh, in these times. And the movie is Virgin Spring. It's directed by uh, Ingrid, Ingmar Bergman. Uh, and the audience knows that these men have raped and murdered this man's daughter. But Max von Sydow playing the knight and doesn't know that they are the ones who have done it. And the bandits doesn't they don't know that this man's daughter is the one that they have just robbed and raped and murdered. So the the suspense throughout so much of Virgin Spring is when will they find out? How will they find out? The audience knows. I mean, Virgin Spring, unlike uh, I think a lot of Ingmar Bergman's other movies, it's a flat out thriller. And it was eventually remade as this crappy Last House on the Left by uh, Toby. Hooper, no, Wes Craven, um, which was, uh, wait, yeah, Last House on the Left, which was also remade recently in this rash of remade horror movies. But it was remade for a reason, because it does play kind of like a thriller. Uh, and the suspense of, you know, when is this guy going to find out about his daughter? What is he going to do when he finds out? It, it just drives so much of what makes that movie good. I love that part of Virgin Spring. Um, so that's my number one pick that I only recently came to, uh, is I've the audience. Uh, you, sh- you should. Yeah. Is it Max von Sydow? Max von Sydow is the knight, and I don't know if anyone else famous is in it. Is there uh, one where he's not a knight? I don't think he was a knight in Incredibly Loud and Extremely Close. Oh. <laughs> he was in that, right, Dingus? But he was a scavenger hunt. No. Yes, he was nominated for that. Uh, does he do anything good? Is there any, like, I know you've sort of waved me off of that movie. Should I see it, like, for him or anything? Two I adverbs love... can't steer you wrong. <laughs> No, oh, that's, he's, right. I mean he's fine in it. It's just it's, it's not him. If if you love United ninety three, do not watch that movie. Really? Oh, all right. I, just, I, I think it's a yeah, it's just offensive. I I didn't like it at all. Well, you know, I don't Stephen, understand why my mom said it was entertaining. Movie. Director Stephen Daldry has done such a great job dealing with sensitive matter like AIDS and Nazis in his other movies. I don't know why he can't handle 9-11 with dignity and meaning. That's yeah? a good point. Or all three <laughs> in one movie. 
Is Virgin Spring the, the tree fighting movie? Yes, he fights a tree to do his ablutions before he's going to murder these men. And uh, uh, there's the scene uh, where he goes out and he just fights a freaking tree and it is awesome. Yes. Oh, that's a fray I wouldn't mind seeing. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I've never so seen far. it, but I love that pick and I love the way you set it up. Uh, as as uh, to, uh, to mirror what Kelly Wan said, that was a great setup. Thank you. Well, as a guy who doesn't like old black and white movies, and uh, you know, I Virgin Spring is is just an impeccable piece of filmmaking. It's one of the, like Casablanca. I can watch Casablanca over and over again and not think, "Hey, I'm watching an old black and white movie." I kind of feel that way when I try to watch things like It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know what my problem is. That's just uh, something that happens to me. But when I watch something like Virgin Spring, uh... all right. So uh, I like run... black and white, though. I do too. And they talk in... faster. It's like better value. <laughs> I like dialogue. it in movies like The Man Who Wasn't There. You know. You, so wait, you're you're saying? Oh. I just don't like it in old movies. Really? No, I don't care. <laughs> so I'm sure. I'm sure it's perfectly fine in most movies. Uh, I don't like talkies. Let's do some runners up because I have one that I want to ask Dingus about. Okay, Ding. You know what? Actually, let me let me put a quick quiz to Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand, let's say you uh, there's a building downtown. You go into the building downtown. You're in the lobby. I'm the bus you, driver. No, no, <laughs> you're not a bus driver. You're just a guy walking into a building. You go up the stairs one level. What floor are you on? Uh, third. Wait. Okay, no. You obviously don't want to answer. So, so most people would say they're on the second floor. Uh, in some cultures, that's actually the first floor. Is you have the ground floor, and then when you go up the stairs, you're on, on the first ground floor. zero. Uh, so, Dingus, there's there's a movie that Dingus and I love where um, the confusion about that misunderstanding, and the nobody, none of the characters in the audience understands the none of the characters in the movie understands the fallout of this. But the audience eventually understands that the confusion about whether that's the first floor or the second floor drives the movie called a separation. Uh, Dingus, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I love that. I love that that's something that the characters never really realize, and it's kind of not important whether they do or not. But we as the audience think, oh, that's why all this terrible stuff is happening because of the confusion with that. Uh that's nice. I like that. It would never would have occurred to me. That's nice. That's also true of P four. Because uh, you know, Dingus, that's where you know when she pays the movers out of the money that Nader later thinks the maid took. Like it's all because of where she has told them. You know, they think right, 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 right. Floor. Yeah, uh, and it precipitates all those events. I, I love that that little that little bit of detail in uh, the movie. Uh, okay, other uh, runners up. What else do you guys got? Uh, yeah, in Star Wars, Vader doesn't know Leah's his daughter, so I guess that means the Force is weak in her. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, the blood pudding bit in Dead Alive, do you guys Ah, uh, that's a good one. It's just so disgusting, but it's another thing yeah. where the audience sees this gross, bloody pus drip in a cup of pudding the character's about to eat it's just it's just early gross out peter jackson he doesn't uh, really do that stuff anymore but oh god i remember that scene from dead alive the zombie knows he does it on purpose <laughs> or she does it it's the mom right uh i don't remember the dynamics does she? i just thought it dripped out of a sore oh god yeah, it's gross it in. In. oh don't say sore don't say drip stop that <laughs> and he eats it. don't say squirt don't say eat <laughs> don't say discharge <laughs> Discharge. Uh, unfortunately, the pre-make last year has sort of fouled 
what happens sequence-wise in this movie, but is there a moment where we understand what's going on in the thing before the characters do? Where the dog, when the dog is roaming around the base? Yes, the, the John Carpenter definitely follows the dog. I mean, we see uh, we see the dog erupt in front of the other dogs uh, before any human being sees it. Well, then they see it right after. Right? I mean, it doesn't stay... But- is the is that moment that I love where the dog where you just see like the dog go into somebody's room and then just the shadow of the guy turning around? We don't know anything before that. Yeah, that's before that. Right. right. We yeah we don't know there's anything. We don't know that the dog will split his head in half and have tentacles come out yet. Because um, okay. that's how it communicates. I just wasn't uh, sure when the audience knew what the characters. Right. No, that that's one of those things for people seeing it a second time. You're like, oh, that's when it gets Clark. Or okay. wait, is it even yeah. Clark that it gets? I they don't know the name of the movie they're in either, except for the Kurt Russell character. Just like Alien. Right. Uh, there are also a lot of movies where the, and sometimes we hate this, but the sequence of events is such that it opens with something that you will see later in the movie. So you knowing that colors what you're about to watch but i think it's well like like pulp fiction like you know that uh john travolta the vincent vega gets shot i think don't you know that like after yeah yeah so it hangs over him and yeah and then later you're watching him with uh uma thurman and uh, like that kind of colors some of what you're seeing there i i I like that device when it's done well or here's another example uh the, the entirety of irreversible because of the reverse sequence of events, you know, where the audience knows what's going to happen to these characters and it colors what you're watching. Uh, it's not quite the same thing. It's, you know, that's more a matter of just timing. Um, but that's if, that's an example of that. What if you watch Memento backwards? Memento's got a lot of stuff like that, right? Where he yeah. can't remember something and you know, yeah, like you see Mark Boone Jr. taking advantage of him at the motel for paying for the room twice. Like, yeah, Momento's got a lot of stuff like that. That's a good one. That. I try to remember that movie, but I can't, so I write stuff on my arm. <laughs> uh, here's a, here's one uh, that is a screw-up. It's a it's a goof that was left in the movie, because I, I later, many years later, heard on one of those little making-of featurettes uh, someone talk about why this happened. But I was always struck by the moment. And it was a movie in 1978 directed by, directed by Richard Attenborough with Anthony Hopkins called Magic where he plays a ventriloquist who goes crazy, and at the end of the movie you find out, presumably there's nothing supernatural, he's just he's gone insane, it's kind of a personality disorder thing, and he's killing people, whatever. But there's a moment in the movie where the dummy is named Fats, where uh, he's always controlling the dummy, and he's talking to it, and he, uh, and he puts the dummy down, and he gets up and walks across the room, and the camera stays on the dummy, and after Anthony Hopkins has got up and walked across the room, Fats blinks. No one is there with him, uh, and th- this is never explained. Uh, you know, there's never any supernatural uh, explanation later in the movie. Anthony Hopkins is not looking at the dummy, so you can't think, oh, it's in his imagination. He's walked away, and it's just the camera. We, the audience, see Fats blink, and it's a weird thing that got left in, and I always wondered, why is that in there, if they're not going to try to somehow have us believe there's something supernatural going on here. So years later, there's a there's a making-of featurette where the guy who actually operated the dummy, they actually hired a real ventriloquist because they couldn't have 
Anthony Hopkins, you know, he didn't have to mess with learning how to make it blink and move its head. They had another guy literally standing behind Anthony Hopkins with his hand in the dummy doing the actual talking and operating the, the animatronic stuff. And that, that guy was a real vent- ventriloquist. So that guy during that scene didn't realize that Anthony Hopkins had moved away. And he was still controlling it, and he made it blink even after Anthony Hopkins had left. He was explaining in a featurette that that was a mistake he made. And for whatever reason, Richard Attenborough left that moment uh, in the movie. Um, but that's an example. Audience sees Fats blink. Nobody in the movie does it. <laughs> but it could just be uh, nature, like the wood blinking. The wind could have blown his eyes shut. You never know. Yeah. You know who's another good ventriloquist? Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> I think in a lot of modern movies, instead of using uh, dramatic irony, they just do a flashback at the end to show you like what the mystery was or a twist. Like the seventh, uh, the sixth sense, sorry, seventh sense. The sixth sense could have been a movie with that. We know he's dead and nobody else does, but instead it's used as a twist. And, and like in It's a Wonderful oh, Life, right. instead I, of like us wondering what's the mystery of the money, it's just done as, as something the audience knows and it's not a mystery that has to be solved. Right. Over the and there credits, are also, go ahead, Kelly. I was just going to say over the end credits of Wild Things, I remember that they show like a bunch of things that happen in the movie from other people's points of view that explain stuff. Her Maeve Campbell taking out her own teeth. Convict pretending that Denise Richards shoots him. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Back to what you're saying. I'm sorry. Thought you'd want to know that. I was going to say the uh, the other uh, runners up are are just like people who are in disguise or that or are undercover that the other person doesn't know. Like like at the end of Reservoir Dogs, when uh, in the standoff when Harvey Keitel is is standing up for his friend when he doesn't know. Right. Or when Dolaride is dating that blind girl and she doesn't know who he is. But the, those were a little weak as far as I wanted. I really wanted things like uh, that, that none of us know. And, and that's why I really love Virgin Spring, because because it, it works on a couple different levels. The way Tom described it is, is they don't know and he doesn't know. And I, right. I really like that a lot. And that's just like, you know, that's like Alfred Hitchcock, the bomb thing, is that, you know, the audience sees the bomb, the two characters don't see the bomb, are they going to see it? Like, I love that kind of setup. You know, things about mysterious identities where one character knows something and the other doesn't, uh, disguises and stuff like that, like, that's cool. But yeah, I like this idea where only we as the audience get information, and then we watch people who don't have that information interacting with each other, yeah. It's also something that has to be handled really carefully and specifically in a movie, because in books, you can just do it. Yeah person easily yep yep movie language movies take very specific language to kind of do that and movies normally like i i we really appreciate when movies really stick to a character's hip and we don't they only show us what that character knows that's such a big part of most movie experiences so you have to be careful taking yourself out of that in some movies or it's like we like dingus's example of brazil you know we're here we're setting the stage it's almost like a prologue here's this fly it fell on this thing that's the prologue now we're going to stick with characters now you're going to see their experience in 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 the the wake of this prologue event yeah or in fish tank you only see what the character sees uh or in the gray or in found footage (laughs) 
<laughs> I was trying to think of like the the, the awful, stupid um, sheet gimmick thing, like in Paranormal Activity Three, where only the audience sees the footage of the sheet behind the woman before she turns around and just sees it on the floor. But so much of that, I mean, horror movies cheat with this kind of crap <laughs> so often, like so often I in a horror movie. It's so stupid. Well, that's the thing. Is so often in a horror movie, the stupid movie just wants to show the audience something to scare the audience for no reason other right. than because they think it's creepy or scary. I mean, this thing gets handled poorly way more often than it gets done well. And horror movies are just so guilty about this all the time. Uh, God, why I don't mean, I... once the catfish guys get into it? <laughs> no, please. No, horror movies have been bad for so long, Kelly Wand. <laughs> yeah, but the first part of all activity, you didn't get the sense the demon was being a showboat. He's <laughs> <laughs> trying to just be efficient. Uh, That's uh, Paranormal Activity Four: Colon Showboat and Demon. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Kelly Wan, what is our three by three for next week? Uh, three biggest cop outs. Okay, cop out is one of my choices. <laughs> I like that good. movie on the table. Can get the bat off my shoulder. <laughs> Is that a stupid one? Like, well, I don't know. Explain, explain what you mean by a cop out. Just things in movies where you felt that the because I like kind of negative ones, I guess. Like you guys like to talk about things you really enjoyed in movies, mm-hmm. but um, well, why don't you take something off the table? Give us an example. What what uh, like made the you gray, think for example? Okay, don't well, spoil what, the gray. Yeah, let's let's not talk about the gray because uh, uh, we talked. All right, about, what about uh? But give us an example of what's, what inspired this topic for you. The gray. <laughs> so I can't say that. All right. Uh, just um, it seems to be a trend in movies lately, ambiguous endings. And I feel there's a certain event horizon at which I, I like that ending. And I, I, I think it is appropriate. And then there's a certain point at which I break up with it. Ah, no, ruin the movie. So, obviously, this is a very subjective thing, and you guys have your own take on what constitutes a cop-out. So that will lead to lively arguments for the listeners to snooze during in a week from now. These are all subjective, so that's fine. But does it, does it have to be an ending, or is it just no. any sort of... It can be, uh, like, okay, I'll take one off the table. Cause it's, but it, cause it's just because it's one that's come up so often, like recently between me and Tom, maybe it's got a little boring, but... Tom's convinced me that Richard Dreyfuss surviving Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't think that's a well. Okay, okay. I well, uh, I just think that I, I wish that he had died. I mean, I, I think Spielberg's creative integrity is immense in Jaws. I love what he's done. I just personally kind of feel, hey, you know what? Hooper should have died. Uh, but I can yeah. think of instances where I would use the word cop out. So. And you, okay, so maybe that's a poor example of one, in your opinion. Yeah, that's a, that's a hero survival ripoff, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, cop-outs can also be things that you felt should have been in the movie that weren't, uh, like essential scenes or, yeah, like hero, like, a, like a scene where you can't see how the hero would have gotten out and then you find out. He so got in out. other words, tell anyone, just anything we didn't like in a movie? Scenes, things, <laughs> scenes where you felt... That the filmmaker wasn't up to the challenge he'd set himself. Or right, like he pulled back. He right. he, he shied away from where, where he should have gone. Like if you thought it was a cop-out at the end of Thelma and Louise, if you don't see the car explode at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. You can say that as an example. And it also had actual cops there, so it's even more applicable. All right, so three biggest cop-outs. We'll see what we do with that in a week. 
Uh, and next week, let's see Chronicle. Oh, boy. Max Landis is my favorite screenwriter. I can't wait. Uh, we will see Chronicle, see it, and join us for the podcast, and then join us for the 3 by 3 of our biggest cop-outs. Also, rate us on Facebook. We love it. Or no, no. Like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, and tweet us on Twitter. If you do, Tom will come to your house and tell you why I didn't come to your house to do a synopsis (laughs) like you promised I would. Uh, If you do, we will, uh, Kelly Wand might consider sending you a prize package. No, we we just love ratings. Uh, They don't even have to be high ratings. Just rate us on iTunes. We love that. If you have any suggestions, if you think that we should do things differently, we would love to hear from you. We uh, appreciate any input. Um, And we hope you'll join us next week. So I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Warchowski. It's Christian Morosky. Looks like a Warchowski. And, <laughs> and Kelly Wand. Oh, also in Aliens. She doesn't know there's two more Alien movies. I had a dream about a dog. I was walking in an amusement Wait a minute. With people uh. all around me. We rode the roller coaster rides and he was laughing as we jumped in the sky and I saw that I Also in Benji the Hunted, the hunters don't know they're hunting Benji. Where's my goddamn kid when I need him? Ooh, Tom. Thoughts? <laughs> you you guys are fucking this up. Let's go. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, remember, remember that from they're, when they're getting on the plane? I loved that boarding aid. The guy taking their boarding passes. <laughs> I love that. There's just the guy who's taking their boarding passes. Like, you guys are fucking this up. Let's go. I, I wish someone would say that. Who's taking the tickets when, when next time I get on an airplane? <laughs>